Thompson, and you're listening to Foley is Pod. And of course, we couldn't do it without the Hall of Famer himself, the hardcore legend, Mr. Mick Foley. Mick, how are you, man? Uh, I'm doing great, Conrad. I, um, as much as I'm looking forward to this uh, episode of Foley's Pod, brother, my mind is elsewhere. It's on Whataburger. Uh, so, oh, Whataburger when, Day today. When I leave here, uh, that's the main reason I come to Huntsville. <laughs> There's a Whataburger right up the road. Oh, man, it's just so glorious. And so as I was passing restaurants, there's a lot of little fast food places I like. I saw Jack's because they have that breakfast all day. And I thought, Whataburger, Whataburger. So I'm yearning for it. I'm going to try to zone in now on our show. But uh, let's see if we can bring them on board as a uh, sponsor. Speaking of sponsors, this is... Uh, I'm, this is more me helping out a buddy who's fallen on hard times. Sure. This is Dwayne Johnson's energy drink. Uh, but, uh, life has not been kind to Dwayne the last handful of years, and I'm yeah, trying to do what I can to help out a buddy. So uh, it's good. It's really the healthiest of all the energy drinks, or the least unhealthy, depending on how you look at it. And I appreciate the fact you guys have one here waiting for me. Tropical Punch, I think, is the flavor of the day. Well, how would you rate it, Mick? Tropical Punch. 10 out of 10. Wow, yeah, it's really how good. about that? So uh, even better than a Young Buck match, ten stars. <laughs> uh, so hey, before we get going, I do want to ask about this water burger. Last, maybe it was a couple weeks ago, you gave us some advice about not to overdo the water burger. Right. So have you learned from that? Are you going to go with a different order? What are you doing today? What's on the the strategy today? Well, it's we talked a little bit about uh, the matches and how sometimes you can overseason yes. a perfect match to the point where it's. Uh, it's a, a case of diminishing returns, right? It's not what it could have been. So I believe I'm just going to go let the uh, quality of the beef speak for itself. Double Whataburger with cheese, mustard. Boom. Done. Nothing else. Yeah, I think that's it. I like it. Yeah, I could go with onions, but I'll be paying for them for a couple of hours. Uh, indigestion or smell? Both. Yes. Both, yeah, both. Yeah. <laughs> on a work day, it's not good to have it in the middle of lunch and then come back and smell like. <laughs> My onions. son, Huey, he's the toughest on me. He's the guy when asked, uh, this, is, um, the, this is a story I've told in years past, but um, I went to my wife. He was like five or six years old, and he was always like kind of busting on me and how about how I wasn't as good as people thought. And I said to my wife, yeah, isn't that cute? He really likes to joke around with dad. And she says, he's not joking. I said, no, no. You know, he busts on me about how I'm not actually a legend. I said, he's not busting on you. I said, and she looks at me and she goes, don't take this the wrong way, but... I've been around a while. There's no nothing sense good. That, nothing good ends uh, with a sentence that begins with "Don't take this the wrong way." But says he doesn't see how a guy like you could have been one of those guys on his TV because he was a huge wrestling fan, without any real appreciation for what I had done because he wasn't born when I was doing it. Aha! Uh-huh. So a little months go by and he starts uh, seeing a little bit of what his dad did and then uh, Royal Rumble comes up and he looks at me like he's got one over on me. He goes, Dad, were you ever in the Royal Rumble? And I'm like, oh, I've got this guy, right? I was like, was I ever in it? I was in it three times in one night as three different characters. And without missing a beat, he looks at me and says, and you still couldn't win? Oh, God. 
<laughs> what a great <laughs> line. What a great comeback. He's right? a natural comedian. Yeah, he's awesome, right? And he was a guy who would no sell my stuff. We did the uh, we did the uh, special, the hard knocks, uh, the hard uh, cheap pop special in 2015, and the whole thing comes down to a story about me driving to. Uh, this is like the climactic moment, right? Comes down to a story about me driving up into the mountains of uh, New Hampshire, uh, and uh, he goes, "Dad, who do you think he's in the back seat of the uh, 2003 Chevy minivan?" Which I, I had to put to rest uh, about a year ago. Who do you think would win in a match between you and Brock Lesnar? I said, uh, he was probably seven or eight at this time. So keep in mind, when he's five, he's busting on me. Seven, he brings up the subject of Brock, Brock Lesnar. I said, oh, he would kill me. He goes, you don't think you would win? I said, no, I, I, not only would I not win, he would kill me. And so he tries reframing the question, like, you, so you think you, I said, son, like, let me put it this way. This trip we're going on, we wouldn't be going on it because I'd be dead. And a minute goes by from the back seat, I hear this. <laughs> I say, buddy, are you okay? And he says, but what if there were barbed wire? And I realize he's like throwing me a lifeline. Like I realize he believes in me and now I'm shooting down this image that he's created of his dad in the past two years. So I say, that would be a different story, right? <laughs> that would be a different story. So I tell this story from my, my WWE uh, network, you know, premiere, uh, and I get right to it. They have the camera right on him, and they're looking for his reaction. I hit the line, he turns to my daughter, and he says, clear as day, I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So I go to WWE, you know, the studios in Stanford to look over it. And uh, we get to that reaction and Chris Chambers, you know, one of the great yeah. producers there says to me, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we won't show that. I said, no, please show it. Like, where else are you ever going to have a special where a guy hits his line with his own son kayfabes him on it. I love so, it. So the reason I told that is he's not big on compliments, but when he woke me up to, uh, to, to make a long drive, right, to Huntsville, uh, he goes, Dad, like, your room really smells good. And I, it does? Like, this is going back to Whataburger. Because you have Whataburger, you know, you're going to pay for it. Yeah. And the people you love are going to pay for it for a couple of days. And uh, he says, it smells kind of pepperminty. And that would go to the mythical beards, full yeti, Beard uh, butter and beard bomb. Uh, How about it's that? part Foley, part Yeti. It's got the peppermint smell. Took a shower uh, last night, and the best time for all you bearded people out there to put on the uh, product is right after a shower, and especially with the peppermint, it's really soothing and it's tingly. And uh, I was so happy that he said I smelled good. Yes. How about that? All so right. no onions on the Whataburger. No onions on the Whataburger. Before we get going with today's topic, which is going to be what a tremendous match it was, Beach Blast 1992, I do want to talk about something that happened over the weekend. Now, of course, some of our listeners are in on the gag now. We're putting a few of these in the can, so uh, we won't be very, very topical with this, but I think this will probably still be the first time we've talked about it. Uh, or maybe you've maybe talked about it. the first time I've talked about it sure. at all. Because uh, just in the interest of full disclosure, you asked me about this. Before we clicked record. Because really had a, you know, interested in. And I said, hey, let's, uh, let's talk about it on the air. 
So here we are. I, I asked, hey, man, The Undertaker finally went into the Hall of Fame. He had his Britney Spears mic on and looks like he was doing a <laughs> TED Talk. I don't think anybody expected that from him. But he did a phenomenal job, yeah. gave a, a really great speech, uh, hit a lot of great points, but he never mentioned you. And a lot of people took notice of that. I know we did. Uh, but then I saw your daughter, Noel, yeah. said, boy, something, something like it sure would have been nice if you mentioned dad or something like that. Yeah. And she took a little bit of a flack for that. But I don't think that's necessarily fair. My entire house, when we watched it, we're all looking around like, uh, no Foley reference? Did you see it? What did you think? Did you feel slighted? Or is this much ado about nothing? Well, I think it's, I think it's a lot to do about very little you know maybe it's not nothing uh the, the the sad part for me is that people took exception with my daughter just just innocently saying that it was a great speech yeah but i wish he'd mentioned my dad that's just a daughter who loves her dad knows what uh the undertaker meant to my career and, and you know i think what i meant to his career and she wishes that he'd mentioned my name and then she followed up after getting that flack. Like, I understand he can't mention everyone. I'm just saying it would have been nice. Um, so my, uh, look, it, I never expect a mention, right? Like, uh, I've, I, that's my feeling. Glass half full guy. Yeah. I never expect it, but it's always nice when it happens. So yeah. if somebody asked me, like, would I, would I have liked him to mention my name? Yeah, sure. That would have been really nice. Um, but I'm not going to say I'm disappointed because I don't expect it. And this is coming from a guy, meaning me, who spoke for an equivalent amount of time, 42 minutes, and I had five names on my hand. I had uh, Domin I had a name on each finger. That's what I had for notes. Dominic DiNucci, uh, Jimmy Snuka, Shane, Shane Douglas, Undertaker, and my wife. And then I went on after I eat when I should have finished my speech. When I dropped the elbow on on Jericho and uh, Punk rolled on the stage to make the count. This could be the greatest finale to a you know WrestleMania yes. speech ever. And then I talked for twenty more minutes. So I, if I had a chance, boom, and I would have just finished it there, and I would have just spoken about those people. But it wasn't until I went to the back and I'm watching Booker's speech, and he's so eloquent with his love for Charmel, and he says something very close to the words, I'd say I do a thousand times a day. I love you, baby. You're the most important thing in my life. And I look at my pinky, and it has my wife's name, and I realize I didn't mention my wife. Oh. So, so you do sometimes forget, right? Yes. But even if he didn't forget, you know, it, I, I can't take it as a slight because, A, uh, I write letters as Santa to the Callaways, <laughs> right? So, and also think about my going back. This is just a, a little over a year ago when my uh, A&E biography uh, came out. It, Undertaker was a huge part of that. Yes, he was a big part of that, and and the crew had to make a trip to Texas, right? Because he specifically said he wanted to be a part of it, and uh, he was Undertaker out of character always gave me the highest praise um and they said that they wish they'd had this on camera that as soon as it was over and they took his mic off he's like by the way mick wrote <laughs> the best letter from Sam, and they had it like they had it like i'm getting those little tingly things because i'm thinking here's the undertaker 
and the fact that I have done something, it takes me about an hour to write a good good letter from Santa, and it looks good, you know, the letters look good. We might have to do a special thing here for charity. I, I like did it. two of them last year uh, for 250 a pop. That's steep, right? But it goes to a great cause, and yeah. you have a you know pretty unique memento. But the fact that The Undertaker's coming and showing our crew, here's something that Mick did for our That's family. a personal thing. It's a personal thing. So I am not taking it as a slight. My guess is that if he's ever asked about it in a follow-up, that he will, uh, you know, he will give me uh, a lot of praise. And look, Conrad, the truth is, if it hadn't been for The Undertaker, I'm not sitting in this chair. That's right. Doing this podcast with you, and it's not so much the the cell match, which obviously was a huge deal, but it's those matches we had. In '96, that especially that few '96, the Paul yeah. Bear turn. So, had it not been from the Undertaker, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm not in a position where I'm 56 and I'm wearing a fanny pack and sweats <laughs> in public, still making a reasonably good living. Not on the level with what our superstars today are making, but still doing pretty well, doing what I love to do. I, you know, you can't fake passion. Right. So when I come on here and it looks like I'm having a good time, trust me, if I was a good enough actor to portray joy like this, I'd be in Hollywood portraying it on camera, you know? Like, I love doing this stuff. Yeah. I love the cameos that we do. I love doing my shows. And um, I love doing the signings. And the truth is, I don't think I'd be doing any of them if it hadn't been for Undertaker coming out of the gate. And then, of course, you know, the the Sal meant, uh, meant so much and has gone on to be something that has... Uh, been uh, seen uh, tens of millions, maybe yeah. hundreds of millions of times. Yeah. And so now I'm so proud. I told you that uh, my reaction to Vince's stunner has now had a million views on Twitter alone. And that's not including Instagram and uh, uh, just the, on, we, we didn't put it on YouTube, you know, because I want, because it was just 20 seconds. Yeah. We're going to put it up there. And you and I talked about the fact that uh, for can we roll this thing? Can yeah, we? Uh, let's roll it so we can show people. Um, so this is about a minute after the initial stunner. So I'd been laughing for like forty-five, whatever, forty-five seconds to a minute, uproariously. By the time my son Mickey uh, turns the video on and he catches Dad, like that was the hardest I laughed. My daughter said it was the hardest I laughed, or she'd seen me laugh since uh, Buddy the Elf was rifling those snowballs uh, in, in our initial screening in the movie theater. So that brought me so much joy. I was hoping Vince wasn't hurt because when, uh, when Steve gave him the boot, uh, Vince's leg seemed to buckle and we know he had a, you know, a double quad injury and Vince is still squatting heavy, still squatting heavy. Can we go off on a little tangent here about yeah. Vince and this? So, you know, I had my uh, right hip replaced uh, what year was that? That was April 2017, okay. and then I had my right knee replaced in September. And what a game changer. Uh, I, if there was a drawback, it's that I felt so good that I felt free to put on weight because I was moving around so much better, and I've overdone that. I need to watch that. Um, but I uh, lost my train of mind here. Well, you were talking about squatting heavy. Oh, yeah, squat. So when I tell Vince, because at the time I was a GM, and uh, I had this, uh, this friend of mine from uh, high school. Her name was Avril. 
Uh, and I wasn't close friends with her, but uh, when I saw her on Facebook request, I haven't been on Facebook in years, meaning a, 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 a personal page, because Facebook shut it down for some reason. They thought it was a fake account because wow. I've got my own account. WWE has a blue check mark. I see. They saw the third one, boom, wiped it out. But uh, the young lady said, uh, I, I saw that she was uh, a physical therapist. And I said, any hope for me? And she says, I'll, let me look at some videos. And this, she comes back with a list of things and she starts training me. I start feeling better and you know, incredibly uh, start dropping weight. At the time I was barely mobile, could barely do anything. Um, and when I told her about the pain, she says, that sounds like a hip. And I was like, no, it's back, it's my back. You know, like I'd had the injections, nothing was helping. I just kind of accepted it. It was misery, right? Uh, we did an episode where we talked about the back pain I had yeah. in 97. Well, this was like that, but I've got to live with it for the rest of my life. And uh, so when I went into the orthopedic guy and I see the x-ray and I see just how bad it is, you know, it's like I have a new lease on life because I've got an answer to the problem. I say to the guy, I haven't been imagining this. And he tells you what you want to hear, like or what I needed to hear, which is, I've been doing this 25 years. This is one of the worst hips I've ever seen. Honestly, I don't even know how you're walking. And I, I was felt so good knowing there was an answer. So the first thing I said, I first thing I did, I got on the car and I text Stephanie McMahon. I tell her it looks like I'm going to have to take some time off because you can't fly. Okay. And we lost Scott Hall, true legend because of blood clotting. That's one of the dangers after an operation. And if you fly, that danger is exacerbated a great deal. So I wouldn't be able to fly. Stephanie writes back like, don't worry about me, Mick. I'm going to be okay. You need to do what's right for you. So when I talk to Vince, Vince says, you know what you need, Mick. You need to have this thing resurfaced. Not replaced, but resurfaced. And he goes, the, the problem with a replacement is you can't train heavy anymore. I said, Vince, are you talking about squatting? He goes, yeah. I said, I haven't squatted heavy since I was 20, <laughs> 25. And so I get it. In Vince's, this is me, not bad-mouthing uh, the, 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 you know, the benevolent billionaire, but I think in his mind, no one's hip could possibly have been worse than his. I see. And so when I brought it to the WWE doctor, he goes, I'll talk to Vince. This is not a, a replacement. This is this is not a, a Resurface. resurfacing. This is a replacement. And it just, uh, man, it just, it, like I said, new lease on life. I was no longer like uh, being asked if I needed assistance when I got off a plane, uh, which was happening about eight times out of 10, you know, because what happens is when you have the back and it's, like I said, it was a hip, but it, it showed itself in back pain. You start walking side to side to take yeah. the pressure off the nerves, and then you're kind of waddling. So that's what I've been doing for so long. Um, again, this tangent, uh, hopefully it was an enjoyable one, but just my way of bad-mouthing Mr. McMahon just a wee bit. <laughs> but I hope we put that other uh, the issue with The Undertaker to rest. Yeah, I mean, I kind of just, uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, hey, maybe it's just out of sight, out of mind. Because yeah. a lot of the guys he mentioned were on the stage or he had just seen yeah. backstage, and you weren't in Dallas for I'm pretty sure if I, I'd said hello to him backstage, you know, that uh, 
uh, that I, my name would have come up. I don't take it as a slight. Would have been nice. Would have been nice, but uh, it's nothing. It's not a big deal. Guys, I can't wait to talk about today's sponsor. It's Henson Shaving. I've become such a huge fan of Henson. I have to admit, we vet all of our sponsors before they become a sponsor. So they sent me a Henson razor and buddy, I loved it. We've talked about how thin and how tiny those blades are. I was like, man, I can't believe this is real. And I got to tell you, just holding the assembly, the Henson razor in my hand, it just felt quality. It felt old school. It felt like something manly. It felt like something my grandfather, my great grandfather used. It was awesome. And by the way, it gave me the best shave ever. Seriously, I can't even tell you the difference, uh, but I've been using all the little fancy plastic piece of junk razors down at the grocery store. I didn't think they were junk because they costed a lot, but it wasn't until I was so in love with Henson shaving that I went to buy my dad one. Seriously, I was telling dad about it and he thought, well, how good can it be? And I said, I'm going to get you one. So I went over to the Henson shaving website and I'm almost embarrassed to tell you how affordable it was. I thought this was a great product, but I thought it cost three or four times what it does because it feels like this product will last you a lifetime when it's in your hand. This feels like the last razor I'll ever buy. And considering how many blades I got with it, because they're going to send you a freaking hundred blades. So I thought to myself, self, this has got to be a certain number. It was a third of what I thought it was. Go see for yourself right now. Henson shaving. This is not in the copy. Everything I've told you so far is just from the heart. I'm just being sincere here. Reality is this is not only a better razor. It's also cheaper than what you've been using. Think about that. If it's better and it's cheaper, why wouldn't you do this? You just got to meet Henson shaving. Let me explain. Henson shaving is a family owned aerospace parts manufacturer. These dudes have made stuff for the international space station and Mars Rover. And now they're bringing that same technology and engineering to your face, daddy. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble. Well, the more nicks, cuts and scrapes. You see a bad shave isn't really a blade problem. It's an extension problem. And by using aerospace grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend just 0.0013 inches. That's less than the thickness of a human hair. It also means a secure blade and a stable blade with a vibration free shave. By the way, it gets better. The razor has built in channels to evacuate hair and cream, which makes clogging virtually impossible. And here's what I love as a businessman about Henson shaving. They want to make the best razor, not the best razor business. That means no plastic, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades and no planned obsolescence. The Henson razor works with a standard dual edge blade to give you that old school shave with all the benefits of new school tech. And once you own a Henson razor, it's only like, listen up three to $5 a year to replace the blades. I can't believe this is real. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that will last you a lifetime. Go right now. I encourage you. I implore you go to hensonshavingcom Foley to pick the razor for you and use code Foley. You'll get two years worth of blades for free with your razor. Just make sure to add them to your cart. That's 100 free blades. When you head to H E N S O N S H A V I N G.com slash Foley and be sure to use code Foley. By the way, if you're curious, I bought my dad copper. He loves it. You'll love yours too. Hansonshaving.com forward slash Foley. 
Well, let's jump into a big deal today. We're talking Beach Blast 1992, going back, I can't believe this is real, 30 years. That doesn't feel like 30 years ago to me. 30 years. It's unbelievable. 30 years. That's me quoting uh, Dusty's Hard Times. Just to put this in your mind, Conrad, I thought this video was lost forever, but uh, my son Huey found it. We talked oh. about Huey a bit. He was so enamored with Dusty's Hard Time promo that he memorized it word for word at seven years ago. Knocked it out of the park. He's got the cowboy hat on. I believe he's got some band-aids on his head. Just knocked it out of the park. I was so happy to find it. But uh, he had that 30 years. 30 years and they slap you on the back and say a computer took your job. Daddy. So let's can we do a watch along uh, maybe in weeks to follow some sometime? I think we definitely have to do oh, that. So if good. you can get that footage, we should tack it on one of these videos for so sure. Good. So good, Conrad. So let's talk about back, way back when. 30 years, uh, August of 91. You return to WCW, you attack Sting, coming out of the box. It's your first big moment on a national scale uh, here in America. Uh, you're not coming in and attacking Big Josh. You're not coming in and attacking Tom Zink or PN News. You're attacking Sting. And you even wrote in your book that you were kind of surprised uh, when Magnum called you because you just assumed, hey, he's going to have me. If he's going to call and ask, he's going to want me to do something with Kevin Sullivan again, yeah, I assume, yeah. in the slaughterhouse. And uh, Magnum says, quote, I've been talking with Dream, and we think we've come up with a spot for you. You assume, really, is it with Kevin Skies? And he says, no, we'd like to put you into a program right away with Sting, which has to make a very young Mick Foley think, this could be the big break, right? Man, for sure. Now, keep in mind that Eddie Gilbert and I had that uh, feud that we talked about. One of my, uh, I really enjoyed talking about that at length with you. Yeah. I haven't done that in forever. So my confidence is up there. And I have to also give credit to my wife for inspiring me, you know, to believe in myself because the progress I made in the 15 months that I was gone, I was just, you know, I'd have to say like Roman Reigns, that 15 months when he turned like, all right, I think you'd have to go there to see somebody improve that much. That's the type of improvement I think that I had, especially when it came to promos because I look back on the stuff I was doing, like when I went out on the independence after my first run in WCW, it ended in July of, uh, so it wasn't 15 months, it ended in July, I came back in August, so it was 13 months. So just a little bit over a year, and I'm like a different person, especially yeah. when it comes to the promos. The promos just started clicking, like within weeks of me getting there, to where I'm thinking of what to say constantly. I come loaded. Uh, when it's time to cut my promos uh, at CNN Center, but I've also got the confidence that I belong there. I don't know when I get there that I'm supposed to be a short-term right. uh, talent. You know, it's supposed to be a six-week program. I think uh, the, the people in charge, Dusty, Magnum, and there was a, still a booking committee, felt like Sting had gone a little bit stale with some of the same programs, and they were just looking... Just for something, a little shot in the arm with a procession of like monster heels, of which I was one. We do our thing, lose in quick succession, and then we're gone. But I didn't know that. So you I show didn't. up thinking I'm coming to work with Sting. I show up thinking I'm coming to work with Sting. The only other time I'd work with Sting 
was I think really early in 1990, I had a really good match uh, with Brian Pillman. And this is, uh, I can't remember which show it was, but it was the one that Terry Funk hosted with Chris Cruz. And I always thought those guys had good chemistry. Yeah. You know, it was a shame that Cruz wasn't there too long. Funk with his howdy and my simple-minded partners, and he called him Crispy Cruiser. And we had a really good match. And at the end of the match, I can't remember if I refused to leave the ring. Sting came down. He bumped me all around. And uh, I was obviously overjoyed to do that. That was the only time I'd had an interaction with Sting in the ring. And I wasn't close with him by any means. Just the guy I said hello to at work. And now I'm coming in to... to uh, do this angle with him but before i do the angle uh nikita koloff quits the company because he doesn't want to put sting over at house shows which just seems silly silly right uh, different era ch- but still my one loss silly. record I, you know i'm in the hall of fame and i think i deserve to be there and i, I lost a lot more often than i won yeah. right especially at a house show against the top guy in the company they know I'm coming in. They need someone to work on top with Sting. They bring me in. So when Sting and I talk about the match, I think I'm there as a top guy. Right. He thinks I'm there for six weeks. For feeding time. Yeah. So he goes, hey, anything you want to do? I said, you have any ideas? And I could really get in the zone. You know, I could really get in the zone. I said, oh, I've got a lot of ideas. You know, and he says... Oh, it'd be so nice to, you know, he kind of jokes around. I start laying out some ideas and Sting says, hold on a second. I just thought you were here to put me over. And so this, now I didn't, we didn't, he didn't break it down and say, you're just here for six weeks. I hear you're just here to put me over. I said, well, there's no reason I can't get over while I'm putting you over. And and I have to just preface this by saying, I've never had a crossword with Sting. This is the closest I came to. Uh, friction, right. you know. So I say to him, "I'll tell you what. Just do, just try this for five minutes, and if you don't like it, we won't do anything else." I suggest. And that night we tore the house down. We really did. And he saw the stuff I, did, you know, had was really within his best interests. And I really had that confidence that I could lose, I could get over while Without not going, going over. over. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not talking about no selling his stuff. Uh, you know, that's you know. when the match was over. People still talked about you falling off the sale. Nobody even really talks about who won. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, and now there, you know, that was a unique it's an extreme situation. Example, but still, uh, but usually when people are looking at a way to go over without uh, going over, they are talking about not making someone's stuff look good. Right. Right? Like, I, I put out the tweet in the aftermath of the uh, the Chris Rock, Will Smith thing where I said, uh, Chris Rock no-selling Will's offense like he was Billy Gunn during a TV loss. And I got a little something from the, the ass boys, right? Like, this is their dad. Just the same way when my daughter is sticking up for her her dad, you understand, like... Uh, that oh, could, the ass boys uh, got hot about oh, well, it. A little, little tiny bit. But that's not something I'm going to get upset about because that's something I've been saying to Billy for years. You said it tongue in cheek, joking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. They're yeah. trying to defend your old dad. But but my kids, like this is uh you know this is probably Dewey when he was younger would look at a certain uh, match and go, I think Billy Gunn's going to lose. I said why? Because he's, he's not selling anyone's. <laughs> he's not selling the offense. So so that was the way I in my head. If Billy wasn't 
winning. He wasn't doing an awful lot of selling. So that's not what I was doing. You know, I, w I was big on, you know, big on selling stuff, but I had the, I thought I had, was really hitting my stride with this Cactus Jack character, figuring out what he was supposed to be. And I felt like I was, I felt like I belonged there. I did. Something I want to double back on. I want to talk about Cactus Jack in a moment, but you said, Hey, in those 13 months I was gone, I really felt like I came into my own as a promo. Uh, how does one do that? Is that just reps? You're just, you're just doing it. Uh, or is it something that you could draw inspiration from? You practice in front of the mirror, you write it down. W what was the behind the scenes of you honing your craft with a microphone? At that time, very few people had access to a video. So there were some people who did videos, um, but I, that's, that wasn't my way. And I didn't write anything down. I, I don't know if I ever, I don't know if I ever wrote a promo down until I was a general manager and I wanted to start getting more of my own stuff into the mix because it didn't feel like my words. Right. And then when I thought, all right, if, even if it's four or five lines, at least it feels like me. Yeah. But uh, I know Joey Styles is really complimentary about the work I did in ECW, and he said it proved Mick's worth as a writer hmm. he, because he thought I was writing this stuff. I didn't write down anything. I didn't practice in front of a mirror. What I did is I just had the ability to visualize it and see it through, and I was constantly, constantly, constantly thinking. So I even wrote my 2007 book, The Hardcore Diaries, about promo land. That's where I would go in my mind, and my wife would see me back when we go to Sting and Luger's gym in uh, Atlanta when I was in WCW, and there was like a telltale sign. My right finger would start twitching, and my right eye would start blinking, and my wife would say, you're cutting promos, aren't you? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, I am. She was always busting me for cutting promos, because she could just see I was like in another world so i said i never got str any stronger at that gym but i thought of a lot of cool stuff to say so that was my way of preparing but i also have to give credit to john arezzi's pro wrestling spotlight because that was where i was getting my reps in because you go in in character john just did an anniversary show and i'm glad i had a chance to hear it because prior to listening to john's show i was grateful that in uh i think it was the for all mankind uh, DVDs that WWE did, I think, a really great job on. They showed a promo that a couple promos that I was doing as I was, you know, coming up through the ranks, and you could see, you could see the improvement. And I would compare it to when I went to see the Thirty for Thirty uh, premiere for Ric Flair's, uh, you know, that great uh, documentary they did. And uh, Ash Charlotte had invited us, right? So Rick couldn't travel at that time as a health reasons. So my daughter and I went in, and there's a clip of Rick where he's clearly playing the nature boy early on in his career because he wasn't there yet. Yeah. And I think it's great for people to see that, that we're all works in progress. Yes. You know, and I was really uh, blessed, I guess, or lucky at the least, that I had a chance to make my mistakes on the smaller stages. Not in the national audience. Yeah, that yeah. when I came up and I had a chance to talk really for the first time uh, in, uh, in WCW, that I felt like I was ready. So John was playing clips where I was coming in. But first of all, I had a really terrible Southern accent. Robert Fuller had told me he was worried for me 
because when I turned babyface in Memphis in 1988, he was worried that if people heard a few of the telltale uh, sounds, and I don't have a strong New York accent. Vince Russo grew up 10 minutes away from me. Yeah. He sounds like he just got off the train from Brooklyn, yes, right? Yes, I think because my mom was from upstate New York, uh, my dad had a little bit of an accent from Yonkers, New York, um, but still I had the telltale sounds, ball, mall, just a few sounds. And Robert was concerned that if I went on the mic as a baby face, fans would see right through me. And so I would go out. You damn well, Yankee. Right, you can't have that. You yeah. can't be a baby face in the South. And even though no one really knows what New Mexico is supposed to sound like, it doesn't sound like New York. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> so we know that, uh, right? Yes. So I would go out to the like the local like honky tonks, and I would be in this character where I would work on my southern accent, which I thought was fairly good. But when I look at John's thing, ah oh, man, John Rizzi show, I sounded awful. I'm embarrassed of Can it. Can you still do a southern no, accent? No, I can't do a southern accent. I, you know, like, you no, know, I was, I'd be embarrassed to do it, and I'd feel like it would be... Uh, um, we could call it Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> then, though, I could take offense. No, I feel like I'd be an insult to the fine people of the South if I did their accent. But you, And you live here now. I so. live here, yeah, yeah. I live in the South. I've lived Tennessee, Texas, Georgia, Alabama, Florida. And then I had the 20 years uh, in New York where I retired and went back to where it was expensive. Um, and, but I, you could hear me progressing as I went along because I would go on for two hours in character. I was never out of character because that's what you did when you were on shows at that time. And then I went through a phase where I sounded a little bit too much like Macho Man to the point where um, uh, Eddie called me out on it, you know, and I didn't know what to do because I didn't know I sounded like Macho Man. I wasn't trying to do that, but I, I looked up to him, and there was a time period where I listened to it. I was like, God, yeah, I do like sound wow. like a second-rate Macho Man. And then you could feel it on another episode. It was like, whoa, I'm there, you know. I've got whatever voice that, you know, Cactus... Jack was, you know, it was always a work in progress, you know, and one of the problems I have now when I do the cameos is that dude and mankind are easy to do caricatures of. Yes. Cactus is not. So I had to decline an interview where a guy wanted me to do a promo that I did about Terry Funk in Japan, but substitute his name for Terry's. And I said, honestly, I don't really remember that promo. He gave it to me and I said, listen, I just don't feel comfortable doing Cactus Jack, and I gave him the explanation about the caricatures. I said, it just doesn't feel right to be doing this promo that meant so much to me that I had my heart and soul invested in, and then to do a caricature of it for money, you know? And that's why when I do Cactus, he just kind of comes on with a bloody bandage. He's always bloody, and he just comes on for 30 seconds or less. But I can't duplicate a Cactus Jack promo because I put so much into it at the time. What was your inspiration for the Cactus Jack character? You know, as you're sort of coming into your own, you had clearly tried some Southern accent stuff, but you've got, you know, the the uh, voice fluctuation. Maybe that's not the yeah, right Yeah, word. no, I know what you're talking about. But Specifically, I remember Stan Lane, uh, he, we were talking about the Helter Skelter TV movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, which had been a huge hit. This is, you know, still a case that has fascinated Americans 
I remember being in Dallas and it was the 20 year you know, anniversary that summer of 1969, these terrible murders on Cielo Drive with the Sharon Tate and then the, the LaBianca family, I think the night or two nights later. And there was an actor named Steve Railsback. And so I'd been Cactus Jack Manson, right? And I have to admit, I wasn't, I didn't like it. I was surprised when I came down and I was announced as Cactus Jack Manson, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't sink my teeth into it and do the best I could with that character. You didn't like it because you felt like it was glorifying him? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I felt it was like cheap heat in the worst way. And I mentioned that to Robert Fuller. Robert said, Jacko, you kind of look like a Manson feller. And then he mentioned it to Eric Embry. Because Eric was kind of, we had done a Supercard 3 thing with uh, uh, AWA, World Class, and Memphis. And it was a pay-per-view, which I made $125 for. But I, I, uh, I wrestled the three Guerreros, which makes me one of the few people in my era to have wrestled all four Guerreros, which I am really wow. happy with. Um, so definitely worth the, the 125 was It was just worth it to do the show. Uh, so I remember him talking with Eric because I was about to come in. He says, he looks kind of like that Manson feller, doesn't he? So they announced me as Cactus Jack Manson. Robert was coming in and out with Jimmy Golden uh, to Texas, and I told him my concern, and we're driving, and he kind of gets this real contemplative feel. He goes, you know, Jacko, not too many spots for a guy that looks like you. Fella can... Fella can ride a good gimmick a long way. And that's when I thought, hey, this is the hand I'm dealt, right? I'm going to play yeah. it as well as I possibly could. And so now I've done what, you know, I got a little chance to speak there in world class, but not much. It was usually Gary or Akbar, a little chance. Uh, Fatu always liked my promos, though. He specifically remembered me saying something along the lines of people say that, you know, the cream rises to the top. But check out any pond, you'll see sometimes a scum rises too. <laughs> and he That's would say, a great line. he would say, tell me about the scum. You know, the Fatu would say, tell me about the scum. I believe if you asked him at, at this point in his life to what was his favorite Cactus Jack promo or Mick, he was probably talking about the, the, scum, the scum rising to the top. It's tremendous. Um, but while I'm driving now with the Midnight Express, I owe a lot. Jimmy Cornout was so good to me. I mean, they've got their thing. Jimmy, Stan, Bobby, they don't need a fourth guy in a Ford Taurus, right? But they allow me to ride with them. I did not room with them. You know, they did their own thing. And then occasionally I would try to get next to Stan's room so I could put a glass to the wall and hear the goings on. A lot, uh, lot of noise. A lot of noise going on there, right? Uh but we got to talking about that Helter Skelter movie, and Stan does a little Steve Rails back, where Manson says he's going to have Bugliosi, who's the prosecutor, Bugliosi, and Elder, who's a judge. He goes, I'm going to have Bugliosi and Elder killed. And that became a little bit, that's where I first started doing the voice, what do you call it, the warbling? Inflection? Yeah, yeah. Inflection. So the, yeah. And, and that carried over to mankind as well. So we all borrow from people. You know, no one would look at Steve, Steve Railsback portrayal of Charles Manson and go, that's Cactus Jack. But that's where I got a little bit of that. And you can see that I borrowed from Terry Funk a little bit. Yes. Even Terry Gordy a little bit, you know. And so you're like, it's an amalgamation, but it's also me. And the fact that I believed in almost everything I said made it ring true.
So you come in, you work that first night with Sting, you get him to agree to just try five minutes of it. He likes it. You keep going, tear the house down. Mm -hmm. You come back through the curtain. He's happy. Dusty's happy. Mm -hmm. It's high fives all around. I don't remember if Dusty was there because it was a house show, but I know that Sting was happy. And uh, and Sting also told me back when you know, jumping forward to when we worked in um, TNA together, he said I he I was never stiff, even at the time when I, I you know I was really limited what I could do, and I've never seen it was a good looking move where I would do the forearm but I would drop to my knees to deliver the forearm, and it looked uh, I thought it looked impressive you know if you can't do a lot make sure that what you can do looks great looks good. And uh, I remember uh, Stephen Re- William Regal, Darren Matthews, you know the guy I'm talking about, right? Sure. Uh, Mick Maloney, the Scrap Man's kid. That was his first gimmick. Really? Mick Maloney, the, scra- the Scrap Man's kid. I, I might gotta, not have the last name right. I got to bring that up. Yeah, the Scrap Man's kid. Oh, are you doing a show with? He's starting a podcast. Oh, yeah. what an amazing storyteller he is! Yeah. Right, one of the great storytellers. Gentleman so, villain, what a great name! Too. Yeah, he's such a great guy, uh, and somebody I I said five years ago deserved a spot in the Hall of Fame for sure, just for everything he brought to the table. So um, the current generation of wrestlers, specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they really uh, they really owe so much to him. Yeah, and uh, remind me why I was. Brought up Regal's name? This uh, is why they well, pay you the big bucks. We were uh, talking about when you're coming in, you're coming yeah. back through the curtain. Dusty's not there. Uh, but you said that Sting had said you weren't necessarily stiff. Oh, but yeah, you yeah, had yeah, this the, one yeah, forearm. Right. Yeah. All, even oh, oh, the reason I brought up Regal is because he tweeted Jumbo Saruta doing a body slam. And a body slam is such a basic move that you rarely see them anymore. People don't do body slams, right? It's not yeah. considered cool enough or cutting edge enough. But Jumbo Saruto, one of the great wrestlers from Japan, we lost him way too soon. It just it looked devastating. And it was just that he did it so well as if that body slam was the most important move in the business. And Regal said, make every single thing you do look good. And I think there's really a lesson to be learned there. Uh, but Sting had said, yeah, that no, I was never stiff. And I never knew because I would hear sometimes that I was, you know. Sometimes uh, I would hear those forearms in the corner uh, came whistling in. But I was happy to see that I never stiffed him. And as dangerous as my stuff looked, it was usually a danger to me. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. so that if somebody was going to pay the price for it, it was it's going you. to be me. And I did. You know, clearly I did. But he liked working with me. He liked the idea that I wasn't there to pull a fast one on him. He trusted me. And he came up to me and he said, listen, he goes, I'm, I'm not really great. I don't, I, hopefully I'm not saying anything can be construed as being derogatory. But it's, you know, it's good to know your strengths and your weaknesses. And he says, I'm not great at calling a match, but I am good at adding things. So here's Sting, the top guy in the company, is basically saying, what do you want to do from that point on? And then he would add things to it. That's great. And it was just really cool at the time coming in. Now, Joe Pettacino actually had a con- global wrestling, uh, which was rumored to have millions of dollars behind it. Nigerian money, which is always subject. It's a red flag. Yeah. We've all gotten sure. that you know email from the Nigerian prince. Who How just, many money orders have uh, you sent? 
<laughs> zero, zero, zero. A buddy of mine got a request the other day from the IRS on his WhatsApp, and apparently he had a big bill with the IRS, and they reached out to him through WhatsApp. Which they don't do. That he need that he had to pay his IRS bill right away with these Walmart gift cards, <laughs> or he was in big trouble. <laughs> and some people fall for it, right? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I did fall for the scam once where someone reached out to me and said their wallet had been stolen, and uh, they were at a hotel, but they were going to kick them out. And uh, they'd been mugged, and I sent twenty five hundred dollars without even checking, without even you know verifying, and so it's hard not to fall for these scams. But right? it was a it was through an account from someone you felt like you knew. Yes, and it wasn't actually them; it was a spoof. Right, it was. Yeah. Wow. Um, so going back to Sting. I'm sorry, my mind's all over the place. Put me back on track, Conrad. Well, you were talking about how I'm not great at calling matches, yeah, but yeah. I can add things. And so now the top guys oh, yeah, come yeah. in. So, so. Pet- the Petticino had this company that I just started working for. And, uh, you know, it's rumored, like, yeah, I'm going to be making 100 grand, right? So that's uh, when I left WCW the first time, I was making 75. And in WCW, the hierarchy seemed to be you come in, 75 is your bare minimum, which is a lot of money at that time. Still, still decent money at this point. And, you know, anyone making 75 grand to today's economy, you know, should be, be kind of grateful, right? Yeah. Um, but I also know that the next tier is 150. And I believe that I'm worth 150. So Magnum talks to me about money and they give me a contract for 75 grand. And I said, I said Terry, I said, I'd really, and I had the backup, which is I'm, I've got another company interested in me. So I'm in the unique situation where I'm actually working for two companies at the same time. I'm going over on WCW. I'm losing, in one case, against Terry Gordy, but it was a really good match. So it wasn't like it's Terry Gordy, who's one of the greats of his era, I'll say of all time. You want to see realism in your match, you know, yeah. watch Terry Gordy and Jumbo uh, Saruta. That was some great stuff in all Japan. I say to Magnum, I said, uh, I think I'm worth 150. And he talks about the carrot, you know, it's a da- carrot, an incentive next year. And I said, Magnum, you've seen me wrestle. There might not be a next year. And that's the way I thought, because that's what I've been told. I, you know, all the, the you know, the uh, seasoned veterans, uh, wizened veterans, uh, kid you're going to be in a wheelchair by the time you're 30 i know you've told it before but tell the arn anderson story <laughs> yeah i come out i do my uh i have my tryout match against the steiners this is uh i had two runs in wcw just this is the uh, first run this is 89 this is november of 1989 just uh, a couple of weeks before i end up getting in the car accident that cost me the the top teeth and uh i believe i'm coming in for a tryout match with somebody who's there to put me over so I, I i look at the chalkboard and it's got me and rick fargo and far rick fargo is not a household name uh against the steiner brothers and i get that feeling i think we've all had the heart sinking oh, it for seems sure. to go from here to here and i do momentarily contemplate quitting their business if i walk out of there i'm basically done in wrestling and kevin sullivan he is my saving grace he says brother what's your finish finish like it throws me off because i just saw my name on there with the steiners so i don't know what to say and i just blurt out that's not what he did i said i drop an elbow and he looks at me and says you drop an elbow for a finish and luckily Cornette was there 
and he fills he fills Kevin in with all these superlatives. God damn, Kevin, you have to see this elbow. It's the damnedest thing you've ever seen. Sullivan says to me, I don't care what Ricky or Scotty do to you in that ring. I don't care how badly they hurt you. I want to see you drop that elbow on your partner. This is such a stroke of genius. Yes. Corny later explained to me that uh, he and Kevin had control of who was losing the match. So they had no control over who won it. But within that context of losing the match, they could do whatever they wanted. So when they come up with this idea that I'm going to turn on my partner, no one's there to say no because it's never been done before. And the whole idea of getting over without going over, yeah. I think is revolutionary. Yes. And you've seen my live show. I mean, I love telling that story so much so that it's the only story I break out from a previous uh, tour because I just love it and it acts as a great bridge from the independence to the uh, yes. to uh, the big time. And when I drop that elbow, uh, and I go into detail in the show about he's five feet farther away than I've ever dropped an elbow. I don't believe I can reach him, but I also don't believe it's in my best interest to hop off the ring apron and scooch him in, which would be a, you know a, a buzz killer of the highest degree. And I just do my best. I'm actively praying as I'm in midair. I don't think I'm going to reach him. But the last minute, I throw my arm out. And so, like, my forearm and hand hit him across the chest. And it looks pretty impressive. You know, you could argue, and you'd be right, that I was doing a lot more damage to myself than I was to Fargo. Corny tells me afterwards that the building shook. And I know he talked about the fact that when I was in Global and I took the powerbomb on the floor from Terry Gordy, Years before I took it from Vader, he said the building actually shook. And people, what the heck? And it's like, that was Cactus taking a power bomb. So in this case, it was the same thing. I come, boom. That guy said their knees, you know, boom, it shook. And I know it's tr it can happen because I heard, felt something similar to that when I went and did the NWA taping for Billy Corgan as a, you know, thank you to Billy for what he'd, you know, helped me. He did a personal favor for me. That's an insight. Is that inside scoop? Have I ever talked yeah, about Yeah, no, that? you've okay. never told us that. Yeah, yeah. So Billy, uh, he did a, did me a solid, and I did him a solid. And while I was there, there was some, some kind of slam or something that took place, something pretty impressive. I guess not impressive for me to remember what it was, but you could feel it. And that's the feeling people had. They, what the hell just happened? They said, some guy just dropped an elbow from 17 feet away. And this is what I love about telling stories, you have the freedom to color them up a little bit. Sure. Whether or not I was actually walking through something that resembled a gauntlet is probably unlikely. It was probably a handful of guys just randomly looking at me. But nobody said a word. That much yeah. I know. Nobody said a word until Arn Anderson <laughs> stepped in my path, right? And you know what kind of sway Arn has with the boys, sure. the dressing room. Like when he talks, people listen. He steps right in my way and he says, son... You just don't have any sense. And I measure my words because I realize who Arn is, and I don't want this to come off bad. I said, no, Mr. Anderson, I don't have any dollars. And he looks at me, he says, point taken. And that was my uh, debut in WCW, and I was hired by the nature boy, Ric Flair. So I'll always be proud of that. It's... Uh... It's a story I've heard several times, and I'll never get tired of it because, to me, that is Mick Foley's motivation in a sentence. 
Uh, I don't. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're trying to take care of your family and you're willing to do whatever it takes. Throw caution to the wind. Uh, hip replacement surgery be damned. Yeah. I, because I, I was working with a really limited hand. So I thought, for example, Japan might be my place. And for 15 months later on in 90... Um, not to cut and you that, off, but you thought that based on the success that Brody had had over there? No, because I, I like didn't that. think I could be a Brody. Uh, I thought that because I didn't, I knew what WWE, WWF at the time was hiring. Six and, foot five bodybuilders. Yeah, and it wasn't me. And I just, it, I didn't see any interest from WCW at that time. Even when, even when I left WCW after the first run. And I had that nice uh, little 15-month run with IWA Japan. I was thinking my, my future then was, uh, you know, the $500 a week raise. So I'd be bumped up to $3,500, which isn't a week. It was for 10 days. So basically, Conrad, I would have been destroying myself for less than $40,000 a year. And you take and then I, I would have made me a big star, the biggest... Uh, aside from Terry, the biggest uh, gaijin uh, in the promotion, and yet I would have been making forty grand a year. But I thought that if I could do that, and even supplement that by showing up on Monday nights as a glor, you know, as a yeah, glorified enhancement talent, do my ECW stuff, that I could make a pretty good living for my family. I come in around the hundred grand range, and it was Paul Lee telling me that I was capable of so much more. And Paul was the first guy to put WWE in my head as a place I could actually end up. And I remember him talking about my work ethic, my ability to tell a story, and that I was a guy who could wrestle another 10 years, which was surprising because I didn't think I had that. And as it turns out, I did not have it. But that was the first time I thought I might have something with WWE. Just gotta cover his face up. Just gotta cover his face. That's right. <laughs> that was the that was what sealed the deal, right? Okay, I'll bring him in, but I'm covering up his face. So going back to Sting, you're you're working with him. You're convincing him. Let's just try a few minutes, see how it goes. Uh, he kind of thinks, ah, oh, you're just here to get me over. You're here to prove a point. The question is to WCW to yourself. What was the motivation at that point? Because once you realize, oh, wow, okay, uh, I wasn't in the long-term plans, you clearly want to change that. Well, I didn't learn I wasn't in the long-term plans until I was already in the long-term plans. Gotcha. So this is, again, where you have the benefit of telling the story the way you think it played out. The way you think you remember So it. I do know that DDP was the producer. This is pre-in-ring DDP. Right. But DDP had come up, and uh, he was, uh, Dusty was always a big believer in Dallas. And so DDP was, I don't even know if he was on air as a manager. I always thought he was a little overblown as a manager. I remember Stone Cold and I, back when he was stunning Steve, just like joking around because DDP had like 18 gimmicks going. You know, he had the girls, he had the sunglasses, he had the stuff, he had the cigar. I've never seen somebody smoke a cigar, chew gum, and use a toothpick all at the same time. But in 1991, DDP found a way. <laughs> he found a way. But behind the scenes, he was the producer. Uh, and of course, he went on to become a legend in his own right. If you don't believe me, ask him. 
<laughs> Will you do that for me? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You know what's funny? As we're recording this, today's DDP's birthday. Is it really? So I started the day by singing happy birthday to oh, Diamond Dallas great. Page today. Small world. I don't know what it says about them as individuals. It's also Charlotte Flair's birthday. No kidding. Yes, yeah, so a lot of birthday songs. Big this day, morning. big day. And we're going to be talking about my special birthday promotion. I'm not going to let you forget it. Mine's okay. coming up here in uh, the next week or so. All right, so DDP is the producer. He, in my telling, he goes up as I'm cutting promos because I'm not just doing the thing where you, you substitute the name of the opponent, the town, the date you know, for the same basic promo, which is the tried and true method of doing it. This is back in the day of market-specific promos. And you might show up, you might have 50 promos to do. There would be promo day. I don't know if it was once a week, every two weeks, uh, but you would go into CNN Center on an off day, and depending on how many promos you had, you'd be there for an hour, sometimes four hours, waiting in line for your turn to cut your promos. And they'd say, all right, I need 30 seconds, Montgomery, Alabama, your wrestling sting. Then they say, I need 60 seconds, Huntsville, Sting, you know, and and then you'd basically have the same promo, but you'd substitute the names yeah. at the time. So Bruce tells this great story about Randy Savage, where he says Randy would just have the same, he had the same, that's not a knock on Randy, this is what guys did. So 30 seconds, Randy, ooh, thinking, thinking, thinking. All right, 60 seconds, thinking, thinking thinking, just drawing it out. Yeah. Because it's tough to end on cue, have a point, wrap it around. It's really an art form, right? So I've got 50 ideas in my head, and I'm doing the promos, you know, and I'm like saying, I last night I couldn't sleep. Instead of counting sheep, I counted how many ways I could do physical harm to sting. I fell asleep at 1,324, and I hadn't even gotten to his legs yet. And so I'm doing that. You know when you're getting a laugh right, from your man behind the counter, you're doing something right. So in my telling, Dallas goes up to the eighth floor of CNN Center, tells Dream, you got to take a look at this guy. Dusty comes down for the life of me. I don't know if it's true. But I believe in my heart it's true that I see Dusty. I know I see Dusty. All of a sudden, instead of just the camera and sound guy, and, and doing uh, interviews at that, of that nature, you have to believe in that character because you can't get the feedback. Usually you can't get the feedback from the guy on camera, the guy doing sound because they've done this 10,000 times before. So if you're getting them to react, you're doing something right. Yeah. So, but you're used to cutting it in a vacuum. You got your producer, cameraman, uh, sound guy, and you. And you have to make people you believe that believe that you believe in what you're saying. Now I see Dusty there, and I don't know for a fact that he had the Stetson hat on or the button-down denim shirt, but in my mind he did. And he's quiet for about two promos, and he walks up to me, puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, I think we'd like to keep you around here for a little while. And before that, I had no inkling that I wasn't supposed to be there for a little while. Wow. I didn't know I was just going to be there for the six weeks. All right, so by now you know that I love saving money, but what you might not know is my favorite thing is saving money I didn't know I was spending. I call that found money here in Alabama. And that's why I love using Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill. Hey, are you wasting money on subscriptions? 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about. Maybe for you, it's an unused Amazon Prime account or a Hulu account that never gets streamed. 
And there's this great app I use that helps me track all of my expenses. And because of it, I no longer waste money on subscriptions I don't even use. You might have heard of it. It's called Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill. And I know what you're thinking. Man, I think I only spend like $80 a month. Did you know that it's actually probably closer to $200 or more? You see, the app shows you all your subscriptions in just one place, and then it cancels for you whatever you don't still want. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't even know you were paying for. You may even find out you've been double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. So get rid of those useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com Foley. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com Foley. Cancel your unnecessary subscriptions right now at rocketmoney.com Foley. So you're going in here though, with the idea of, I want to prove my worth. I want to build to a bigger contract. I want to turn some heads, right? Um, how do you think it's going? Like when, when you first come in, you're working with sting, you're doing these promos. Are you feeling like, Hey, this is a much better experience than my first time in WCW. We're headed in the right direction. Yeah. And I thought I was in head, headed in the right direction during my first run. Love the stuff I did with the slaughterhouse. It was just a matter of Ole came in, he replaced Rick as head of the booking committee. Ole was a traditionalist, you know, he wasn't a fan of my style and, you know, that may have stung at the time, but in retrospect, it was the best thing that could have happened to me because when I came back, I came back with some more seasoning, belief in myself, came in feeling like I deserved to be a top guy and uh, was treated as such by the top guy in the company, which was Sting. So yeah, I thought it was going really good. They teamed me up with Abdullah. And now the guy whose photo had been on my wall as a freshman in college, I told the lie that he was my dad so often it came to be gospel at in Fitzgerald Hall in Cortland College. This is my dad. So now that was uh, 83, eight years later, he's my tag team partner. And the beautiful thing about Abdullah was that you didn't call anything backstage. You didn't call anything before the match because he didn't call stuff. So I remember uh, for some reason it was uh, Sting and Rick Steiner. Uh, I don't know if Scotty was hurt or whether they were not a tag team yet at the time, but we did a lot of main event house shows. And, you know, what do you want to do? I was like, I don't know, you know, no sense calling anything. Just, you know, Abby's just going to do what he's going to do. But what he did, he did as well as anybody. It create chaos. And so these matches took on a very, it took on an air of reality. And uh, I loved working with him. We complimented each other. I was getting promo time. One of my favorite promos was the happy birthday, Dear Stinger. Yes. And it was Paul Heyman who gave me the line, Sting's last birthday. He was Sting's last birthday. And, you know, this is me going, happy birthday to you. And Abby's, I don't know if he's eating the cake uh, by, you know, he's got his face in the cake, he's eating it, or he's taking off pieces, I don't know. I do know I've got a 420-pound man with grooves so deep in yes. his head that he would freak out the gamblers in Puerto Rico by sticking his poker chips in his head. He's eating a birthday cake while I sing happy birthday. And JR says, it might have been Paul conducting the interview, although I think it was JR. Uh, that's really nice, but it's not Sting's birthday. And that's where we turn it around. So, I know that. 
Don't you think I know that? But I wasn't here for Sting's last birthday. As much as I wish I'd been in attendance for Sting's last birthday, I was unavailable to attend Sting's last birthday, so I think we'd better celebrate it now. And here comes the line Paulie gave me, because Sting's last birthday was Sting's last birthday. Sorry, I spit on you, Conrad. Bang, bang, <laughs> bang, bang. And I just thought the fact that we're scaring people yeah. with a birthday song. With Abdullah eating cake, it was just like a magical mayhem, and I could not. Didn't matter to me that you know that the big, the top money of the time was seven fifty, and I'm right. making one fifth of that. But I've got I've got a child now, and I've got a home over our head, and I'm working in an atmosphere I love, and it was just uh, it was a real great period of time for me. So let's talk about the contract for a minute, because I think in your book you wrote that you even came back and started working with Sting before you actually had the contract. I did, yeah. That's when they offered you seventy-eight grand. You you talked about the dangle, and and he took it to Jim Hurd, he big Magnum. They got you the one fifty-six or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. uh, but you came in really just looking for an opportunity. Yeah. And I think uh, you know that just shows you how much the business has evolved. I can't imagine. WWE bringing someone in to work a program with Roman Reigns, and they don't have him under contract. Talk about WWE now. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, at this point, I think they'd have those guys locked in with yeah. these contracts we were talking about. Yeah, uh, more crazy. power to the men and women making that money. Uh, but man, I think, uh, yeah, I wish I could uh, go back 20 years. So let's talk about uh, these promos. You're talking about how you're going to end Sting's career. In fact, at Clash of the Champions in Augusta, you're all over the show. You have a promo talking about how you're going to end uh, his career. And there's another box, just like the one you debuted in. Yeah. Here comes Abdul the Butcher. Um, Sting, who attacks you, has a gigantic baby face pop. <laughs> I only bring this up because prior to you being there, that was not the case. He was getting, I don't know, some lukewarm responses. We know he's the franchise. He's yeah. a good-looking dude, got the fun look, but he needed the right opponent. And when you hear this big reaction to you and Abdullah, you know we're the right opponents, right? I think so. I think so. And I might begin my time uh, confused by a couple of weeks because it might be the case that when I came out of the box and attacked Sting, that I was not under contract, and that I was called in early to, I think I was supposed to start working with Sting. Uh, do you have the date of the clash? Uh, I don't, but but I do know later that same night, that's when you come out of the box yeah. after Sting beat Johnny B. Bad. Right, I that's come out of the That's when you box. attack him, hit the elbow drop off the middle right. turnbuckle to the floor, and then a double arm DDT, so pretty big statement here that Pretty you're big making. statement, and uh, one of the two best elbows I've ever dropped, the other one being Randy Orton at Backlash, but it was just a beautiful elbow. Sting sold it like a million bucks. And I guess people could argue that we gave Sting his comeback on the same night, you know, and, but at that point, just the idea of having the excitement. And I remember Sting with the biggest compliment because he hip tossed me off the stage, you know, and you know, he dumped garbage on me and I was all over the, you know, brawled, not all over the arena, but up, up through the, uh, uh, back through the entrance. And I remember him just looking at me, he said, you're great. Wow. And that meant so much to me. That meant so much to me. I remember saying that exact same thing to Leon White after he and I had had a match, I think on Sunday Night Heat, where he really put my stuff over strong. And uh, 
I planted a seed for that later program. I said, oh, you're great. Because I remember how much it meant to me when Sting said it. Is that the first time a star of that caliber had given you a compliment like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd have people who, you know, liked what I did, complimented it. Even when I walked into center stage uninvited, you know, and, and met Jim Ross and, and Ric Flair for the first time, there was a handful of people who had seen what I'd done on World Class and said, hey, you know, uh, Rip Morgan being one of them, a couple other guys. And Corny was a fan. Corny had wanted to put me and uh, the guy who was later... Um, uh, the, the toilet flushing. <laughs> you remember? Teal Hopper. Teal Hopper. Dirty white boy. T Dirty white boy. Tony, Tony Anthony. Anthony. Yeah, and Tony was a real, real good hand and a real yeah. reliable talent. A mechanic. Yeah, a mechanic. You know, and a great, a very good heel. And he was thinking of putting us together with all kinds of like stuff hanging off us and calling us the wild things, which would have been fun. But then this thing, uh, I end up showing up. Corny knew my stuff. JR knew my stuff. There'd been talks. I'd had a conversation with Jim Ross when I was in world class. I remember having the big cast on my, uh, on my arm from breaking my wrist in the scaffold match, but I was still working. And Jim said they were interested in bringing me in. And then Jim, uh, he left uh, the position from booking committee, and it would be another, whatever, a year and a half before I did get the, the break. But people were familiar with what I was doing. But in answer to your question, no one approaching that magnitude had put me over like that prior to Sting. Do you think the just the natural order of things back then was whenever you're working with WCW or a, a quote-unquote big star like Sting that you're going to iron out all the kinks on the live events before you put them on TV? Because that's what you did here, right? Yeah, I don't know that there were any kinks, though. Like these matches, some of them were only eight, nine minutes long. I'm just but, saying in terms of, you never know what your chemistry is going to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that, that would be the idea. You see what you have. Yeah. Uh, the match I had with Shawn Michaels being an exception to that rule, and that was, that was the first singles match we ever had. Mind Games 1996 was the first singles matches, but we'd had tag matches. But yeah, I, generally you want to see if there's some chemistry there. I think one match people could really look at, uh, if it's available on Peacock, is the Submit or Surrender. I don't know what the difference between submitting and surrender is, but it was a dusty creation. It sounded cool. That was the one match I wore with the white Sting t-shirt, and it had, like, uh, the teeth blacked out, and Sting was holding a pitchfork. And, in, yeah, it was the last time I wrestled with a white t-shirt, but it was a heck of a match. And the closest I'm going to come to having a, a power, an impressive power move, is that I caught Sting, who was about 250, legit, maybe 260. He was a you know big boy. Uh, you know, just an incredible build on him. And I caught him coming off the second rope, spun around and dropped him with a Eddie Gilbert hot shot. Closest thing I've come to a power move. And even when I watch it, I go, I don't know how I did that because that wasn't in my, you know, it wasn't in my comfort zone or how I ever talked Sting into doing that. I don't know. But that was a really good match. And at that time, it felt like that was the send-off. Right. You know, we hadn't had a paper. I don't think we'd had a pay-per-view match together except for the, I think Sting may have been in that Chamber of Horrors. I'm not sure. Yes, he was. He was in that Chamber of Horrors, but up until Beach Blast, which was nine, ten, ten months after that feud began, we had not had a singles match on pay-per-view. We're going to get there. Um 
There's a WCW taping I want to ask you about that takes place in early October. It's you and Abdullah taking on Sting and Bobby Eaton and Bill Kazmaier actually missed his cue and interfered before the finish, causing it to all get messed up. I got to meet Bill as a little kid, the nicest man oh, ever. Oh, what a nice man, right? But boy, he was in over his head in wrestling. He was. was he not? He was. Um, look, one of the disappointments I had is that when I got called in 91, my first TV taping, I see Dennis Brent. Dennis was a photographer for WCW, later went on to play a big role uh, as a writer, you know, writer of the magazine and behind the scenes with WWE. Uh, but I knew Dennis, and Dennis has something he can't turn. You know, I, can't, I don't know what kind of gadget it was. And I'm not able to do it. And I go, there's Bill Kazmaier, strongest man in the world. And I ask him if he could do it, and Bill goes, sorry. <laughs> to the back I was like he's the strongest man in the world like I was expecting him just to just doom. but even the strongest man in the world I guess couldn't turn whatever gadget it was but you know they're build, they're sending him out there he'd had a run in stampede Owen said it was the craziest thing because Bill here's Bill Kazmaier the strongest guy in the world but the guys are kind of picking on him in a weird way. And he'd be like, God, stop putting stuff in my hair. And even one time he came in uh, with some kind of new outfit. And he was so proud of it. And Rick Steiner, <laughs> Rick Steiner just got on his case, wrote him about the ridiculousness of the outfit, which may have been true, but we're in pro wrestling. A lot of the outfits are ridiculous. And it affected Bill so much, he never actually wore the thing out there, right? He went from being ultra proud of it to being <laughs> so humiliated, he never wore it. And now he comes out with, on one of the specials, he comes out with a globe, like he's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. But as he's carrying it, you can see it bouncing up and down, giving proof to the idea that it was an inflated balloon, which yes. it was. And then, of course, there's the Oz Kazmaier spectacle for the ages, which is like the benchmark for just rottenness yes. in our business. I asked Kevin Nash, good friend, right? You don't want to get on Kevin's bad side. I said, Kevin, you okay with me uh, mentioning this match as being the all-time great stinker? He said, Mick, I would be offended if you didn't. So <laughs> it was, and I remember the, the guys now, is Kevin's seven foot tall. He's jacked, right? Like as Oz, he was even bigger than he was, you know, muscular wise. And Kazmaier, and they're doing strongman stuff, but neither one knows how to do strongman stuff. And they're doing tackles where they're not selling it, but it doesn't look like it should be sold. It's not that thing with the immovable object meeting the irresistible force. It looks like two guys. <laughs> Figuring it out. As Arn Anderson would say, I'm going to drop an F-bomb here, okay? I know uh, exactly which one, too. Cluster fucking to a symphony of silence, okay? <laughs> <laughs> First F-bomb I've dropped on you guys here? I think so. All right, I could have beeped it, but uh, keep it in, because I think that's significant. And I remember bringing Kevin back. You know, Kevin, was like, Kevin, come on, you're the biggest. And I show him, look, you don't hit him here. You hit here. Now, instead of having this much... Uh, space. Now you've got all the way through here. You just put your arm here, and I said you can hit him as hard. And that's I did very little in the way of slapping. You know, I did. You never saw me do this. Uh, but whenever I did, I always used the right hand on the opposite shoulder so that when I hit, there was always the the sound. And I said, well, you can hit him as hard as you can. You're not going to hurt anything because you're all in a straight line. There's no danger to your collarbone, your shoulder, nothing. And you guys can hit each other as hard as you possibly can. 
and you can make the, the building practically shake, but you got you have to do everything. And Kevin, so he was he absorbed all that stuff. And I remember, I know this is a segue we're going off on that, you know, he was in a lopsided, uh, you know, it was a lopsided match where he lost and he just stayed down for three minutes after losing to somebody, uh, you know, who would not go on to make the type of mark that Kevin did. And I was like, Kevin, just keep yourself alive in there, you know, like you, you, even if you lose, it's not that you're no selling it, but oh, you're angry. Just don't stay down. I remember saying, you don't have to sell punches. You don't have to go down on punches. And now it's overdone, you know, the you know, looking at your, but at that time it wasn't, you know, and I remember picking it up from Danucci, you know, so uh, in the uh, annals of wrestling history, Rip Rogers was forced to do a job with a tackle. That's humiliating, right? But he sold it so well, he sold it like he broke his nose. So as soon as the thing went, he went to the nose and everybody thought Rip Rogers broke his nose. So you can make things into, you know, you make anything as big as you can I like and i remember when kevin went to wwe as diesel and i saw a little bit of this and i said to my wife he's doing what i told him he's doing what i told him i wish you weren't doing what you were told for halloween havoc 1991 <laughs> sting eligante and the steiners uh, would defeat you vader abdul the butcher and the late great scott hall yeah. then known as the diamond stud it's Who a chamber it? what, of horrors was, was vader in there did you say vader Yes. He was in there. So what an all-star team of bad guys, right? An unbelievable cast of characters just three months in, and here you are in a major TV program in a pay-per-view match with Sting, and they start the show with it in Chattanooga because <laughs> of this monstrosity that they have built. Yeah. And I understand why we need to start the show with it. But even as a kid, I thought, so we're going to electrocute a guy in the first match, headlock takeover in the second. <laughs> it's sort of like your buried alive analogy you made a few weeks ago. Now, of course, we know Abdullah didn't really stick with the program. He didn't die. Uh, he fought his way back to the back. But still, we saw a man electrocuted. Yes, and now arm bars in the second yes. match. Yes. So it is somewhat akin to, like you said, where Undertaker's hand goes up through the earth Yes. Jim Ross says, he's alive, he's alive. The bolt of lightning comes down. Undertaker's hand comes up. He's alive, he's alive. The hand goes back down. No attempt to uh, uh, resuscitate or rescue the Undertaker takes place. And instead, the new rockers come out to take on uh, the Bushwhackers in an, a non-televised dark match. It's something like that. But like you said, this is a monstrosity, right? Yes. This uh, is a chamber of horrors. It's uh, I never did an elimination chamber, but it's something like that, right? It's well, not, we're going to have, it's a weird cage where it kind of leans in and there's these spooky things hung around and there's this switch that one team yeah. is going to put the other guy in the electric chair and then they'll throw the switch. Of course, the damn switch kept falling switch on its falls own. falls down. I have to pretend I don't see it fall down. I do remember that Sting threw some kind of big wooden board or door or something, and you can see my eyes following it as it goes up, and instead of bringing my hands up or blocking it, I follow it all the way down, come up with the crimson mask, you know, like, I could see how a fan might say, shouldn't he have seen that guy? Yeah, I guess I should have, but... It's also head-to-head -head with Game 7 of the World Series. Whoa. It's like the worst timing yeah. for a pay-per-view ever. Yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about it in other great detail. But um, but do you know what? Here's a couple significant things about it. Nick uh, Patrick, referee, was wearing the referee Referee, yeah. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And so you got some unique looks. 
And I did, when I was thrown uh, into the ropes, I did kind of a handspring over the top rope with the idea that I would hit the, the uh, chamber upside down, which I did. I don't know if they caught it or not, but it was the only time I ever took that bump. I don't ever suggest anyone does because then you just have their, what happens to your body after it hits? Well, it's probably going to fall down and land <laughs> on your head. So please, if you're listening at home, uh, there's a reason why I only did that once. And my answer, whenever I'm asked about the Chamber of Horrors, I always reply, well, there's a reason why there was no Chamber of Horrors 2, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a disaster. I had to climb up there. I had to pretend that I didn't know that Rick Steiner was reversing Abdullah. He kind of gave him a standing belly to belly into the wheelchair. And then, I mean, this part, you know, Abdullah was selling it, right? Like, he was really cooking. It looked really cool. And then they brought down the ghouls to carry him off. The ramp wasn't set up correctly. Abdullah then uh, fights off the ghouls, and um, we have a classic on our hands. That's one word for it. Uh, <laughs> but within the confines of that awful match, there was a lot of good stuff. Oh, there was a lot of yeah. great stuff in there. It was a just a harebrained idea. Yeah. And what makes me laugh about it most of all is as you recount the story of taking that upside-down bump into the cage, I feel like we've heard a story like that before where, and then I was just going to headbutt this crate. <laughs> well, what happens when your head goes through the wood? Conrad, I never thought of that. Never thought of it. Not for a split second. I was so focused on that image in my mind. Going to go Did through you it ever start thinking about the impact after the move or was it always just the spectacle and we'll deal with that later? Well, I did have the Foley risk reward ratio analysis, which uh, in large part, kept me safe, made me feel like uh, the, the, the reward was worth the risk. But I'll go out and say two dozen times over the course of a 15-year full-time career, and then, of course, the comeback, there was probably two dozen times, with the cell match being one of them, that you threw caution to the wind and hoped for the best. Being as smart as you are, though, there has to be a part of your almost a protective device just within your brain where you're like, I'm not going to allow myself to think about that. Right. Yes. You try to block it out and keeping in mind that by bringing these wide variety of bumps to the table, I was able to avoid things that I did think were dangerous that I wasn't sure I could do. So you did not see me often taking the, the German suplex. Right. So the back suplex it went underwent an evolution from where Dory Funk Jr. would pick a guy up, drop him uh, on his back in Japan and would get an amazing reaction. And then that you know became the Saito suplex. You know, Saito suplex took that up a couple levels. When Dr. Death, Steve Williams, started doing the backdrop driver, I would watch. I was still watching All Japan Wrestling when I was in WCW, and I would jump up out of my chair, cover my eyes, because I know this is uh, real danger. A, a real danger. And Doc later told me, he says, brother, they're lining up to take that bump in Japan. They wanted to prove. point of pride. Point of pride. And I would look, and I would see, like, Kenta Kobashi, you'd get that forearm up there. So the full, but then on the Foley risk reward ratio analysis, way too much risk. Agree. Very little margin for error. And we've seen, you know, now uh, as June rolls around, Big E is doing a lot better. 
But yeah. man, if he didn't have that musculature in his neck, he'd he, have been in real trouble. He could have been in real trouble. So anytime you are t you are going backwards or over the top, in this case, belly to belly, and it wasn't just the Steiner one, which is a sideways, you're going over the top. Anytime you do it, you're putting your... This is the Iron Lotus of professional wrestling. Like, you have to have the trust in your... Same way uh, McElroy and Chaz Michael Michael had to trust each other. You're not putting over my uh, my Blades of Glory reference, are you? Did you know the, you, you know it, you're just not putting it over. I, I did not know the names of the characters. <laughs> I've seen the movie one time. That was enough for me. Uh, so I, I, they did not ring a bell. Okay. I will say this about the suplex, though. I, I had uh, a few cocktails with Ric Flair once upon a time in Nashville that Undertaker happened to stop by, and they were talking about the night the streak ended. As everybody knows, I think, as public knowledge, Undertaker got a concussion that night. So Rick is saying, man, what were you thinking? He said, Rick, the last thing I remember is seeing my feet go over my head. Yeah. Because the exact same move you're talking about there, when he's going backwards like that, and you're a big man, you're 300 pounds, and you see your feet in the air, it's going to end poorly. Well, going back to the matches I had with uh, Abdullah against Sting and uh, Rick Steiner. So this is fall of 91, Lakeland, Florida. I remember it. Um Rick Steiner ends up uh, ringing my bell with a, uh, a German. And, uh, and Sting got on his case afterwards. He said, how could you do this to this guy? He's out there every night. He's putting me over. He does And he goes, I thought he was trying to take something on me. Because with Abdullah, you don't have something worked out. I had Rick, I think, in a headlock. And Abdullah's fumbling around. He's, he would, you know, we'd stop off for, for lunch somewhere and he would grab a fork and take it with him, you know, and he's going to use it in the match. And I see Abdullah fumbling around and Rick apparently thought I'm going to, first of all, I'm not somebody who takes things on anyone. If I was going to start doing that, I'm not going to start with Rick Steiner, right? right. College All-American, badass, shooter. I'm not going to do that to begin with. And so uh, Rick, uh, you know, um, Sting kind of, you know, he chewed him out a little bit. And I remember driving home. I had Colette with me, and, and uh, Dewey was a baby, and Colette's mom was with us. And everything felt kind of muted, you know? Like, I was aware there's music playing. And I came back the next day, and Grizzly Smith is talking to me. And he just looks, and he's like, are you okay? And uh, I think so. And, uh, you know, we didn't go to hospitals to check on on uh concussions back in that day and uh it was we didn't know what we know now we don't know we didn't know then what we know now and i was also fortunate to be in a line of business you go look i can't uh, don't hit me in the head don't throw me on my head i can do enough stuff to work around that but you just worked your way through that concussion but that was the f I, I had a couple uh, working with the uh, british bulldogs uh was probably my first and i would say that was my I don't know for a fact, but I'm guessing that was uh, one of my first handful of wrestling concussions. Back then, you just said, hey, I got my bell wrong? Yeah. Is that the yeah. phrase? Yeah. yeah. So before we get back to Sting, somehow in here, you wind up being programmed with Van Hammer. Yeah. Um, I got to ask about a house show match you had November 17th, 1991 at the famed Greensboro Coliseum. It's you and Sting in a steel cage, but during the match, you go backstage for a little prop. I don't think I went backstage. I think I had it in a bag. 
So tell the story here and the backstory right, the as back, best as you can. The backstory, I was not at the Ramada when this went down. I did stay at the Ramada. That was the place to go. Uh, WCW, in Atlanta. In Atlanta. I think even the Nature Boy like stayed at the Ramada sometimes just because it was such a fun place. You know, the bar was always hopping. There was... I remember a big brawl, a friendly brawl, but a big one nonetheless with Harley Race and Butch Reed where they moved all the tables and those two went at it. Uh, and so there'd be some good-natured ribbing, there'd be some drinking, some dancing, and apparently Sid came, Sid may have been with WWE at that time. I don't know. We'll check. Uh, I don't know. We'd have to check. He, he was not at the WWE. Yet. Okay. But he and Pillman got into a discussion it becomes heated. You may recall there was a war games. Yeah, yeah. And they had an issue there yeah. where he goes to flip him up for the power bomb. Pillman hits his head. It's, he's not tall enough. He doesn't have the clearance. So he, he kind of dropped Pillman on his head. Okay. So there was so there's a little, a little bit of some bad blood there. Total accident. I don't think intentionally Sid yeah. would have ever. He just didn't know that I right. couldn't. Yeah. And so Sid went to his car for a weapon. And he came in either in the parking lot or into the Ramada with a squeegee alcohol is flowing yeah, these guys yeah. are cross yeah brian pillman's got a little fight in him with a squeegee right and so greensboro is one of the wrestling capitals of the world and it's where a lot of the smart fans of the era congregate and they've got paper or cardboard squeegees um that they've got you know and it's kind of funny it is. It is funny, right? Of course. It's just about a high, fifty. Say probably not fifty, but even twenty guys with squeegees is pretty funny. Hilarious. And I, I don't know if I asked Sting. I it's something. I don't know if he brought it up or if I asked him. But either way, I'm not going into business on my own by having a squeegee in my bag of goodies. But I do know that Sting is, you know, as a baby face, right? You know, he's a classic. Even though he's colorful and all that, he is the classic. White Good, meat baby face. White meat baby face. He's not going to show fear. He's going to show, or he's going to at least show courage in the fa uh, in the face of fear, right? Which is uh, action in the face of fear is what courage is all about. If you're not afraid of it, you haven't done anything, right? right. So he's going to conquer his fears, but not show it in an outwardly de demonstrative fashion until that night in Greensboro, and that night, because in classic wrestler fashion, the Bad guy gets some heat, especially in a cage, uh, where you have something you can try to climb. Uh, Babyface starts making the comeback. The heel's trying to get away, and the babyface is pulling him back down. And so before the cages you know, became so athletic, the big payoff would be three or four times into the cage, rake the, uh, the head, come up with some blood, and you've had yourself a good cage match, no matter what took place prior to that. If you can get that in, you've had yourself a pretty satisfying cage match. But in this case, I, they may be in the no blood era. Can't remember. But I have Sting down, and I go into my bag of goodies, and I come out with a real squeegee, not a cardboard squeegee. And Sting sells it like I've, I might as well have a Thompson machine gun in my hands. He starts trying to climb... <laughs> Climb the cage, and now it's my job. I'm pulling him back down by the by the tights, and I get in the big blow, and he's selling like a million dollars, and I'm walking around looking at that squeegee, and of course he turns the table, brother. When Sting got the squeegee away from me, I'd like to think I came up with some blood, like it's deserving of it. 
but it was the type of thing, maybe we're only getting that amazing reaction from 25 people out of, you know, we probably it. had 2,000 people in that audience, you know, that was about what we were drawing, maybe a little less than that. But those people were treated to a heck of a cage match. I eventually did the favors, but not before I struck fear to the hearts of the stinger with a squeegee. When you come back through the curtain, is anybody upset about it? No. Nah, they loved it. I don't know if Sid was there. Don't know if Sid would have loved it, but I do know that the boys, boys really, and, if, and, and Conrad, you're in a position where St when Sting, top guy in the company, he's putting you over, it kind of clears the way for you to work with anybody. And they know that the stuff you're doing is a danger basically to the guy doing it, not to them. So can't speak highly enough about Sting. You end Van Hammer's unbeaten streak at Clash of the Champions 17. I'm so glad you ended that streak. People are still talking about it to this day. <laughs> uh, it's the pr premier streak in the history of pro wrestling, right? It's Undertaker and then Van Hammer. <laughs> Everybody knows that. Uh, so your first big match with Sting takes place on November 22nd. But can I just say about Van Hammer, I really enjoyed working with him. A lot of people didn't want to because he was new and he was green. Uh, but he was willing to do anything, and he was a really good athlete. And so we could take some of that athletics, athleticism he had and, uh, and uh, you know, gear it in a real positive direction. And I remember the first match we had at the Clash, not to be confused with the Anything Goes uh, match in Topeka where we end up in the, the bullpen, yeah. you know, with real bulls and the 420-pound uh, cowboy, uh, Abdullah the Butcher. Um, but I remember... You know, we had the, I don't know if it was a, you could, like a Titantron type of thing. So I could actually see Van Hammer behind me, but the fans couldn't see that I could see Van Hammer behind me. And I told him, as soon as you take off, you know, uh, jump off that top rope, I'm wheeling around and catching you with a clothesline. And it just, it worked really well. People had no idea how I could, had eyes in the back of my head. And I really did enjoy working with Van Hammer to the point where we got the, uh, $5,000 bonus. Best match bonus. Best match of the night. And uh, we cut Abdullah the Butcher in uh, for a share and even referee Nick Patrick. So, how about that? Pretty cool. Guys, by now you've heard about Blue Chew on our program for a long time. Mick and I are big believers in Blue Chew and we want you to try it. Sincerely, this isn't just for guys who have a <clears throat> problem, this is for guys who are trying to leave a lasting impression. For guys who want to enhance their experience, think about it as PEDs for your PENIS. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredient as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, y'all, day or night. So plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. And the process is simple, guys. It's three steps. Number one, you sign up at bluechew.com. Number two, you'll consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, number three, you'll receive your prescription in just a few days. Blue Chew's tablets are made here in the USA. They're prepared to ship directly to your door. And by the way, it's in a discreet package, so don't worry about the mailman knowing your business, okay? The best part, it's all done online. That means you get to skip the awkward conversations. You don't even have to go to the doctor's office. There's no waiting in line at the pharmacy. It doesn't get any easier than this. And I've never recommended Blue Chew to someone, and they came back and said, oh, it didn't work. Everybody's like, hey, man, uh, thanks for the pro tip. So if you can benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, chew it and do it, y'all. Let's have some better sex, shall we? Well, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free and use our promo code Foley at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code is Foley to receive your first month free. 
Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. We thank bluechew for sponsoring the podcast. So the first big match was sting November 22nd, 1991. You're in Washington, DC. It's a submit or surrender match. Uh, it ends when the referee, uh, <laughs> You got a scorpion deathlock on the outside of the ring. Okay. You're going to pass out. Um, that's so Dusty's a, looking out for my character. Yes, he is. Even then. Uh, that's available on YouTube. We'll link it below. It aired on the Power Hour. Uh, but you have to be thrilled with how good this comes out. I mean, Sting winds up dropping the U.S. title before it airs. Uh, I guess that WCW taping schedule back then could really run roughshod over some of the plans. But... Man, you're getting a primetime match here. This is way pre-Nitro, just so everybody yeah. understands. So the syndicated shows are a big dog on deal. Yeah, they are. And obviously Saturday night is, is the flagship show. And it should be said that before the Monday Night Ratings Wars shone a light on the ratings, WCW was regularly beating WWE as far as WWE's Monday show. Well, it wasn't Raw yet, but it was... Oh, uh, primetime. Primetime. Yeah. We would regularly, and our show was the Saturday night main event. Saturday nights? Just Saturday night. Saturday night. WCW Saturday night. That we were regularly beating them. Yes. But nobody was paying attention because we weren't running head, head to head. To head. Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of folks said, oh, well, of course they're going to win. They're owned by a television company. Yeah, yeah. But whatever. Um, as the year ends... Did you think that was probably going to be the end of you and Sting, or did you think I there did. was more life in this in 92? No, I I, uh, I was really satisfied with what we'd done as far as a blow-off match. That submit I thought the Submit a Surrender was a, a great blow-off match, and I was really happy with it. And uh, uh, by that point, you know, I'd had good TV matches with a lot of guys. Uh, loved working with Pillman, with Bobby Eaton as a singles don't think I, uh, Bobby was a singles baby face at the time. Uh, you know, Steiner, I'd worked with a number of top guys and, um, I thought they all worked out pretty good. Lex Luger gave his notice at Starcade that year. Do you think that changed the plans? I mean, if Luger would have stuck around, it feels like him and Sting would have been a natural to keep something going, right? Yeah, because I came in when it was eventually revealed who my benefactor was. Right. It was Luger. Right. And I remember, you know, doing a promo and I, you know, playing off the Garth Brooks song, uh, Friends in Low Places. I said, Lex Luger has friends in low places who jump from high places, which was, I thought was a pretty good line. Uh, and then Luger was gone. So I don't know if it changed the plans. I really don't know, but I assume it did. Well, you're feuding with Abdul the Booker, Abdul the Butcher at the start of '92. And Abdul of course, the Booker, had he taken I like that. that? Yeah, Abdul like the that. Booker. Can you imagine that? A guy literally using a pencil as his gimmick, but instead of using it as a weapon, instead of a fork, he schedules you out of the main. Okay, okay, Abdul the Booker. What would he put in his forehead if it's not poker chips? <laughs> any, any racer. Yeah, any of course, <laughs> of course. Uh, so Sting and Luger are on a collision course for Super Brawl. You know, just. As a guy in the company, did that feel like a big deal to you that Luger was leaving? Clearly, everyone knew he was going to work for Vince. They got a little cute with it. He wound up being part of the WBF first. Yeah. Um, was that more of a frustration, do you think, of, hey, he's frustrated with how WCW is going? He doesn't like management? Uh, or 
is it something else? He thought the grass was greener with the WWF. Probably. And I, you know, I wrote a, a article I was really proud of called Reexamining Lex Luger and why he belonged in the Hall of Fame. I really think over time people have forgotten what a big star he was. Huge. So when I came to WCW, maybe the first or second clash that I was there for was the one where Sting uh, jumped off the ring apron, destroyed his patellar tendon, and he was out for months. I mean, six, seven, eight months. And Luger, who had just turned heel in July uh, against Barry Windham, when uh, they did like a double turn, he became uh, part of Harley Race's stable. He's Harley's main guy. And so the Luger, the babyface turn that he had, now he's got the hot heel turn, and within two, three months, he's asked to turn back babyface because they need a top babyface without staying. And I know it's like, yeah, you know, this is, uh, I always, I tell talent, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Um, but in the long-term plans, you know, you need to get as much mileage as you can out of each run you have. Yes. So you need to, not to squeeze every last drop, but you need to fulfill your potential as a baby face or a heel before the turn takes place. When it's done just for the sake of ratings and to shake things up, it never works out well. And it ends up in a point where a guy like Big Show yep. can turn so many times that Chris Jericho and I can kill a three-hour flight by counting the turns, not even get to the end of the turns, and keep in mind that was 15 years ago. So guys like that turn a lot. Every, every turn means a little bit less than the one before it. But Luger, I don't think, got as much mileage out of the heel turn as he could have. Therefore, the babyface turn wasn't what it could have been, even though I was on hand for, you know, show-stopping matches with Flair every single night. I stayed every night. I watched these classics every single night. People can say it was Flair. He could have a match with a broomstick, and he can, but not a four-star match every night. So I thought Luger was fulfilling his end of the bargain, and I thought he was really good. So when he left, that was a big hole in the lineup. The deal with the broomstick line has always been too. Well, that's not true because the broomstick doesn't pose any sort of credible threat. <laughs> you can't take a look at Lex Luger and consider him anything other than a credible threat. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just physically, if you drew a wrestler, it might look something like Lex Luger. So much so that when uh, the wrestler came out, the body for Randy the Ram Ranzeski, I think that was his last name, was Luger. Yeah. It's like, this is what a great wrestler of the 80s looks like. So at the time, the Dangerous Alliance is the top heel faction in WCW. Uh, you had been tight with, uh, with, with Paul. Was there ever any consideration or talk about you guys maybe getting together? Not that I know of. He, had that, he really had that good thing going and a great lineup. That was Bobby Eaton, Larry Zbysko, Arn Anderson, Stunning Steve Austin, and Medusa, right? Yep. Great lineup. Yeah. And recruit. I, I got to think the if the four horsemen didn't exist, people would be talking about that group. The dangerous alliance. Yeah. I mean, cause what a faction. It was great. At super brawl, you lose to Ron Simmons. Sting is going to win the WCW title from Luger. And it doesn't exactly make it seem like you two are going to come back together. When did you realize, or when were you told they're going to put us back together? I mean, it feels like for you to lose to Ron Simmons, and him to win the title, and now you guys are together. I don't know. Did you know that book going into Super Brawl? I don't think so. Uh, uh, so Vader comes into the picture around this time. 
he has to because I know that the storyline we have, it's almost like I'm a hitman for hire. Okay. So, uh, because Jesse Ventura during the course of the Beach Blast match was saying Harley Race has to love this. What happened, and I know because Sting told me, we were the only two, we were the only two wrestlers at Vader's uh, Celebration of Life in Colorado, which surprised me. I think it's a little bit sad given how much Leon did for the business. So uh, Sting was there, I was there, and we, were, we had a chance to talk and catch up. And he was talking about the night Leon did the moonsault on him in the Omni at a house show. Talking about 420 pounds, doing a moonsault is unthought, to the point where Paul Heyman had to scrap his idea of making Bill DeMott his number one star with a small upstart promotion, I believe may have had um, David Crockett. I don't know if one of the Crockett's was involved, but I think, yeah, Crockett yeah. was trying to okay. do something. Yeah, and uh, Paul was going to make Bill uh, Demond his number one babyface on the basis of being a three hundred pound guy doing a moonsault. Crash the Terminator. Yeah, crash yeah. the Terminator, and then he sees Leon doing it, and all of a sudden that puts a little wrench into the works. Yeah. So Sting said the moonsault was fine, but it was Leon's body kind of popping up from the mat and then landing on Sting's ribs. It bruises his ribs. That's where Dusty comes in with the wooden crate. I guess since we're talking about it, I might as well tell the story again. Sure. It's not like this one gets old. This is Sure, no. Uh, I walk into Center Stage Theater a week or two before the match. I guess their feeling was, it doesn't matter that this guy lost to Ron Simmons. He's a, going back to the credible threat. He's a credible threat. He doesn't really care about winning, plus this is his match. This is the false Count Anywhere. Dusty saw me having a few of these false Count Anywhere matches with Sting on the road. Loved them. Said, we're going to make you the king of the fall of the Count Anywhere match, which meant I didn't win a single one. But I was nonetheless the king of the Falls Count Anywhere match. Uh, and I think I mentioned on a show being in Savannah, Georgia, and doing like the ha-ha stuff, the plunger in the face that he had me. He used plunger. I didn't care at that time. And it wasn't getting over. So we had to go with the more genuinely hardcore stuff to the point where I was practically or literally crawling down the hallway to my hotel room where my wife was on hand because that was within a driving distance of Atlanta. So we'd had these Falls Count Anywhere matches and they were good, but never, uh, we'd had the televised one, Submit or Surrender. We're gonna come back, we're gonna use Sting's injured ribs as our storyline. They never said that I was the, you know, the, the hitman for hire, but that's the way I felt it was. And I remember Sting coming to me and he was concerned that the promos I was doing about being deprived of my chance were too much along the babyface line. He didn't he didn't he thought maybe fans were starting to feel sympathy for me. And I so I sat I don't know, I sat down or I stood up and I talked to him about the movie Cape Fear. And I said, remember at that point where Nick Nolte hires the three guys to do a number on, uh, on Robert De Niro's character, great heel character, and he's the babyface. Uh, Nick Nolte's character is a babyface. Robert De Niro's is the heel. But during the course of it, you see De Niro mount this comeback. And now you see a guy valiantly fighting off three armed attackers, and your baby face is cowering behind a uh, <laughs> cowering behind a dumpster. And there's that line from De Niro: "Come out, come out, wherever you are." And so I impress upon Sting that it's not always black and white. And I give him the example of the bad seed in a classroom, bad from the get-go, 
and that bad seed will never have the amount of heat with the teacher as that kid who has the potential to be good and makes the choice not to. Yeah. That's where the heat is. So I impress upon Sting, just trust me. You know, like I never did get to really pay that off, but was that was the idea. If you get to like me just a little bit, boom, I'm gonna turn it turn it around on you. You know, just like the way I I love the Michael Hayes told me a, a bad guy or heel has to believe he's right. Yes. And the more warped his logic, the more dangerous it makes him. But anyway, I assuage, you know, his concerns. It's a good word for a New York Times number one best selling author. I want this podcast to be educational. And uh, we are going to take advantage of Sting's injured ribs via the wooden crate the American Dream has. When I ask him uh, what he suggests I do to it, Dusty says putting the boots to it, which strikes me as being a little more, uh, a little unimaginative. Yeah. And I say to Dusty, Dream, I believe I can drop a headbutt through that crate. And he looks at me and says, I don't think you can. And then I tell him about my visualization process. I'm going to go to a dark part of this arena, and in my mind, if I see this thing 50 times, I'm going to do it. And he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, for the record, I don't think you can, but I'd like to see you try. And there's me dropping the headbutt, sting, these are your ribs, this is your future. I go through that thing like a hot knife through butter never once giving a moment's pause as to what might happen to my head once it goes through that wooden crate. And the answer is, boom, bounces like a basketball. I attempt to stand up, and I fall back down. Bounces like a basketball off the concrete off the underneath. Concrete, yeah. yeah. Now we're live to tape, which means we're not live, but they're taping it live, right? Right. So there's no editing that goes on. I go to stand up. I fall back down. JR is the man with the mic. He attempts to interview me. And there, not a word comes out of my mouth. He grabs that microphone and says, Cactus Jack is ready. I love it. So, WCW Saturday night, May 30th, you're going to be taking on Sting in a non-title match at Beach Blast. That's where it's announced. Um, non-title. What do you think of that? Is that, that? Did that maybe lend more credibility to the match? Like, hey, maybe Cactus can win. Perhaps, yeah. Maybe the feeling was we're, no one believes this guy is going to win a title. Right. But we believe that he can win this match. And my feeling was I wanted people to believe that I could injure him. Abdul the Butcher style. Abdul, Abdul the, the Butcher's Butcher character didn't get into wrestling to win championships. He got into hurt people. And to me, and we may have discussed this in the past, that's one of the things I think is missing from the WWE product is there's no killer heels. It's all guys trying to win matches. Yes. And that's great for most people, but I think you have to have that, that one Who are guy you scared of? Is who the you're point. afraid of. You're not worried that your favorite is going to lose a match. You're worried that your favorite is going to be... Taken out. Taken out. And so that's the, what I tried to bring to the table. This is actually Sting's first big singles match since becoming WCW champion. And it's a non-title match. That feels a little weird, but boy, it's a compliment to you that of anybody he could have worked with, they wanted it to be with you. Yeah, pretty cool. Uh, as you said, it's a false count anywhere match. Does Sting have any reservations about doing that type of match on, on a big no, stage? By this point, he's looking forward to it, and and he's the guy coming up with ideas. What if we do this? You know, he's really looking forward to it. So can I jump to the first move of the match? Sure, go ahead. Uh, it's going to be a reversal into the ropes 
outside the ring on the ramp backdrop. Meltzer would say Cactus took a backdrop on the ramp and a face buster on the ramp. That's quite so the way to start. When I go to do the Irish whip, for some reason I'm, I go, Sting reverses me and I'm looking way up the ramp at the curtain. I've started out in the wrong position and I panic and then he has the presence of mind to turn it around so it's like kind of like a double whip. And now I'm going to the ropes and once I take that backdrop, backdrop knocks the wind out of you, jars you, but at the same time, it's really rewarding because I hear that, you know, that uh, applause from the audience and it also jars me into that alternate reality where I am that guy. I would come in hyped up, but uh, and later on, especially as I'd make my comeback matches in WWE, I would definitely need that shot to jolt me into that alternate reality, but it always helped. So I take that big bump, I take the face buster, and we're off to the races. So let's talk about that for a minute, because I don't think that you've really shared that with us before, but we know that Goldberg back in the day, stupidly, would headbutt his locker to yeah. get himself ready. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just said, man, I got that first backdrop and it jarred me. It took the wind out of me. I heard the applause, but then I could really become the character. Did you always try to schedule some sort of big bump early in the match just so you could get in that rhythm? I can't say that I always did. Uh, you know, with Edge, it was the cookie sheet, you know. So I, I, and I can't say that I always had a big move lined up because I'm, I know there were things that built up in a more traditional manner. But I, I liked hot starts. I did because did I think- wasn't, when I was out there, no one was under the impression they were seeing Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr. Or 14 Hurricane Ronas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I liked the idea of coming out heavy and then trying to keep that pace up for however long I'm out there. Did you sometimes do it when you yourself weren't motivated? Like for whatever reason, like you're just like, nah, I'm not feeling it. Well, you know, going back to um, the match I, Max Payne and I had with the Nasty Boys, I'm coming off a real lull because I've lost my year in Germany. I think that this is a gift from the wrestling gods, you know. They do nothing with it. They don't do anything with it. I I feel like it's intentional because I feel like if they do something, they know it's going to get over. If I'm cutting promos on Vader uh, surrounding my ear, it's going to be big business and they don't want that. That's not in the cards. So I'm really down. And I, to the point where I don't even talk about that match. You know, we don't talk it over. Uh, we know the finish. And then uh, Sags or Knobs hits me with a pool cue. You know, pool cue. It's a pool cue, right? The yeah. Stick. And yeah. I realize, like, if I don't start fighting back, these guys are going to eat me alive. And then that turns into a really good match. Primarily, and partially because I took that shot. So I won't say it was always that way. Uh, but often I would have something big. And it didn't hurt. I mean, it did hurt. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so here we are. Uh, this is um, going to be one of maybe, uh, at this point, is this the biggest match of your career? Yeah. Beach Blast 92? I mean, you're working with the WCW champ. It's on a freaking pay-per-view. So it's, 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 it's amazing how, you know, as your career starts ascending, everything becomes bigger than anything you've done before. Yeah. So when I have the tryout match with the Steiners, that's the biggest match that I've ever had. When I come back and I come out of the box, I'm literally praying in there that I have a newborn son, you know, uh, my future is ahead of me, and that becomes the biggest moment of my career. You know, and now 
pay-per-view match against Sting, singles match, no doubt it's the biggest match of my career at that point. It's not without controversy, though. Kip Fry is going to leave WCW. He's replaced by Bill Watts. Were you <laughs> nervous, anxious, excited? What did you think of that? Well, here's the deal. Uh, Kip comes in and he starts giving away contracts, right? Like, even, you know, a guy, like, guys are making, like, 185 who weren't even in the cards before. 185 was big money. Like, yeah. Freebirds got 185. And I remember... Uh, driving to one of the shows with DDP and uh and 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 Kevin Nash and Dallas says something you know what's great about Kip is that he, he what he says is not important what is important is Kevin's response is what's great about Kip is that he's sexy in a shy type of way just these just bizarre comments that only Kevin Nash could say uh but he leaves and I'm I'm left with nothing because my contract's not up for another four or five months. Bill Watts comes in, he starts, oh man, he starts shredding, you know, sh shedding uh, overhead to the point where you know, no more catering. I think he may have done it away with the coffee machines. He's uh, He comes in and he introduces a term to wrestling of, a, at least in my experience, of a seller's market and a buyer's market. It's a buyer's market, meaning you've got nowhere to go. You're going to take what we can give you. I know that when I did have the contract and negotiate, I called WWE, which I did. Uh, this is the first year my contract's rolling over. So I did call, and I called every year for three years for one minute. Be told there's, they're not currently looking for new talent. Then I would tune into Raw and see Mantle. New characters yeah, left yeah, and right. Yeah, left and right. So I know that's not in the cards. And the fact that Bill gives me the same deal that I had is seen as a giant success. Of course. He doesn't try to, to shed it. I, I, I talked to him, uh, have a nice day about Bill's Ten Commandments, you know, thou shalt not come off the top rope. He takes the pads away from ringside, which is a benefit to me because now my stuff has no loophole, right? Instead of doing the sunset flip from the second rope to the floor with pads, now I'm doing it on the concrete. I like that. I didn't like the idea that we had to stay until the end of every match. Yeah. You know, this is where Nikita Koloff raises his hand in a meeting and he says, uh, this may have been the same meeting where Bill finds a guy for being two minutes early because he shut the door five minutes before the meeting is scheduled to start. <laughs> Close the door, but Bill, we still have three minutes. Find him. Find, you know, that was just the way Bill was. And Nikita Koloff raises hand. Bill, I understand uh, how important it is uh, to stay to the end of uh, every match, but there are some times we've been on the road for a couple weeks. It's a Sunday night. We have a chance to get a flight home and spend an extra day with the family. And Bill goes, it's a tough business on families. Okay, let's go. And so it was just no, no, acknowledgement. no acknowledgement. But Bill liked me. He liked me. At the time, I developed... A hooping cough. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that I was going out there for my house show matches, and within 30 seconds, I catch hooping cough, which I thought was eradicated, right? Yeah. But it's rare, but it happens. Pertussis is the name of it. So my infant son, Dewey, has hooping cough, and it's a big concern for me and my wife. You know, hooping cough can cause death, and I end up catching it. I end up having terrible trouble breathing at my house show matches. Um, the point I remember Barry Windham comes in and tells a couple of guys, he's got no business being in the ring. Right. And then Ron Simmons gives me some kind of bump uh, at that same time era. I'm not sure if it's related to the whooping cough, but I'm literally holding, I'm swallowing the internal bleeding and it's oh. filling up my mouth quickly. 
I come back and like like Dizzy Gillespie on a trumpet solo, just blood spewing out, and that's where Bill suggests I go see some medical attention. And at one point, I mess something up, and he goes to chew me out, and then I say something. He goes, "I, right, damn it, I, I know you're doing the best you can." I never got chewed out by Bill Watts. He really he liked me. He, I was a Bill Watts guy. You know, and uh, despite the fact that I, I was happy to see Bill go because, you know, uh, um, we all, you know, I thought it was going to be even a better era for me. But I did like Bill being in there. I know Bill wanted to cut down the number of pay-per-views. I remember him specifically saying, for damn thing I would do is get rid of this beach blast. Uh, but that being said, uh, when I came back through the curtain, I know we're, maybe we'll wait and I'll tell you Bill's reaction. We'll go over the match a little bit. But I was a I was a Bill Watts guy and proud of it. Before we get to the match, your final build with Sting on the house shows, um, you're going to be putting over Junkyard Dog, Ron Simmons, Dustin Rhodes. I know it's not on television, but it's a little counterproductive. You're working with the top guy, but and you're losing. Also, Bill's one of Bill's primary goals, in addition to cutting the overhead and contracts, was they were going to make the Omni Atlanta into the Madison Square Garden of the South. So you were much more likely to have a top babyface or heel come out and cut a promo on national television about a house show at the Omni than you were about an upcoming pay-per-view, which seemed right. absurd to me. Like, I understood they had their priorities. Why that was, a, I don't understand. Seemed like the money is to be made on pay-per-views, which were still doing pretty good business at that time. House shows weren't great, but I think uh, pay-per-views were doing really good. I wasn't as locked into the numbers then as I eventually would be, but it did seem counterproductive to be losing at the house shows. But I, I, I didn't mind doing it. I didn't think it helped. I didn't think it hurt me as as much as it would. Uh, yeah, you overcame it. Yeah, yeah. I like. I felt like uh, a great technician and a great heel like Rick Rude would be hurt by a loss more than I was. Now, Abdullah didn't feel the same way about losing to the point where he left the company making $1,000 a night, no guaranteed yearly contract, but 1000 a night because he didn't want to put Dustin Rhodes over at the Omni, non-televised, but big uh, Japanese media contingent there, didn't want to do it, and walked away. So you could say Abdullah and I were comparable type of characters yeah but he he felt like losing was a big blow whereas i didn't i did not feel like it was a big blow but again you have to remain a credible threat yes and i think uh losing constantly chips away at that credibility naked mind yoga plus pilates is a brand new fitness and wellness studio owned and founded by brandy rhodes the physical studio in Roswell, Georgia offers yoga and Pilates reformer classes, plus childcare for clients all under one roof. That is truly unique. And it makes Naked Mind the only yoga or Pilates studio of its kind in the entire Atlanta area. For those of you who aren't local to the Atlanta area, Naked Mind has an app. You can get moving with yoga and Matt Pilates classes led by Brandy and a handpicked group of established yoga and Pilates instructors. It's a fantastic way to try yoga and get into a new fitness and wellness program. Yoga is good for the mind and the body. 
making it one of the leading wellness practices in the world today. You can find the Naked Mind app on Apple and Android devices and enjoy $10 off your first month or retail when you use the code CONRAD10. Naked Mind plus Pilates online at NakedMindStudio.com. That's NakedMindStudio.com. Let's talk about the match here. By the way, we're talking about Beach Blast 1992. If you haven't seen it, I want you to go watch it. It's on Peacock. You wrote in your book that until your match with Sean at In Your House Mind Games, this was your favorite match. It really was. I think uh, if there was one drawback, uh, it was it was not considered long enough to be a classic. It's about the 10-minute mark. 11 but, minutes, 26 yeah. seconds. But I'll argue that for the general public, those 11, 10-11 minute matches go down really well. They're perfect. It's really tough if you're showing a friend who's not a big fan it's really tough to get them into the nuances of a classic back forty and minute, forth, match, 40 minute yeah. match. But if you can get people out of their seats and, uh, you know, like, oh, whoa, and jaws open for 10, 11 minutes, I think you're doing something really special. And I think we took advantage of every second we had. Meltzer would say a sting pink pinned cactus jack in an explosive match or false count anywhere on the Gulf Coast. 11 minutes, 26 seconds. So conceivably, I could have won with a small package in Pensacola. I think the Armstrongs <laughs> have been winning with uh, small packages down there a long time. Uh, maybe you could have did it in Navarre, too. <laughs> That's right, my home for four uh, years. They never quite made it to the beach, but it was <laughs> the match of the card. They started brawling on the ramp. Cactus took a backdrop on the ramp and a face buster on the ramp. Sting crotched himself on the top rope when Cactus ducked a body block. Jack did an elbow off the apron with no padding on the floor. Ouch. He then did a neck breaker on the floor and a sunset flip off the apron to the floor. Jack took a backdrop over the guardrail and a suplex on the floor. This is one of the gutsiest and most insane performances I've ever seen. Jack started selling his knee. Jack gave Sting three chair shots to the back until Sting came back with a back suplex on the concrete with Jack landing on his head. Jack later missed the knee drop off the middle rope, uh, middle rope to the floor, injuring the knee once again. Sting came back with three chair shots. The third, right on the knee, went for the scorpion on the ramp, but both fell off the ramp to the floor. Cactus does a double-arm DDT on the ramp, but Sting kicks out and came back with a clothesline off the top rope. Since this was no DQ, that move was legal, but it goes onto the ramp, and he pins Jack there on the ramp. Quote, Cactus Jack has a lot of guts, but you simply can't do matches like this very often and enjoy a lengthy career. Four and a half stars. Uh, I don't know if it was a match with you and Sting as much as it was a match with you and Concrete. Uh, you and Quickcrete had big heat here. Um, a lot of Concrete work Yeah, a lot of in Concrete match. work. Look, one of the things I liked to do in specialty matches is you take a normal move like a sunset flip flip and you put it uh you know in a specialty match where you can do it off the ring apron to the floor and clearly there's a lot of impact being made when you're doing a sunset flip onto the floor uh, i think the most ridiculous uh pinning attempt was where i believe i small packaged the undertaker on top of the uh buried alive mound of earth and we both rolled back down uh, down it. And it's a small package in a Mankind versus Undertaker match. But because it's on a grave, it takes on uh, a new meaning. So, you know, you throw in a little creativity with the sunset flip, a lot of concrete. And Dave would be correct in saying you can't do those type of matches 
very long. You know, I, I got another nine years in, right? But uh, yeah, yeah, uh, this is where it's high impact as opposed to high risk, right? A backdrop on the floor is not something that's going to injure you. It's going to knock the wind out of you. It's going to jar you. I didn't know, like we said earlier, we didn't know then what we knew now about head injuries and that when you take hard bumps in the concrete, you're rattling your brain around. Whether it hits the concrete yeah, or not, right. the jarring. Right, yeah. the jarring, yeah. So, yeah, it definitely sh shortens careers, those type of matches. Uh, but I was... I the sunset was, flip off the top rope to the floor on the concrete, I think he did it with Miro. It's probably the crate. I remember watching that over and over thinking, how is he not dead? Yeah, I did it with Van Hammer off the second rope. Yes, I, I did it. maybe that was it. And I, yeah, I probably it was about 10 times I would do it. But I remember going around the loop uh, for Smoky Mountain and having great false Canterbury matches. I thought they were great. Chris Candido was a really underrated heel and a lot of fun to work with, where that was a, just a, you know, a false finish every night. Um, and those, like I said, that was really a real blast to have. The sunset flip to the floor? Sunset flip to the floor. Not off the second rope, but sunset flip to the floor. It's a tough deal, man. Yeah. Um, this match really stands up. Sometimes you go back and you watch wrestling from 30 years ago, and you're like, eh, I, I don't really get it. And, and listen, I'm guilty of that. I grew up a giant Hulk Hogan fan, and some of that stuff, well, yeah, yeah. okay. But now this, buddy, that could be on any Monday or Wednesday or Friday night today. Yeah. Um, what, how was that received by your peers? And, and tell me what Bill said. Really when well. Back through I the came curtain. through the curtain and Bill says it doesn't get, he, whether he said any better or much better, I don't know. But it was either it doesn't get any better than that or it doesn't get much better than that. And seeing as how just a few hours earlier had been talking about how if he had his way, he would have gotten rid of that whole PPV. That was a huge compliment. Yeah. Sting was really thrilled. What I remember most specifically in the aftermath was that we're in uh, Mobile, which is about a six, how was that? Five, six hours from Atlanta? Yeah. Five, six hours. I'm driving home. Nothing happened in Mobile, by the way. What? The, the home of uh, Mardi Gras, but there's nothing to do in Mobile, Alabama. I'm not sure I follow you. I'm just saying, of course you're driving oh, home okay, from Mobile. Okay. There's nothing <laughs> okay. in Mobile. Like No one says, boy, I can't wait to run down and vacation in beautiful Mobile, Alabama. And by the way, it is lovely. It is lovely. But there's nothing to do there. A home of Paul Bearer? Yes. Right? Michael Hayes was a Pensacola guy? Yes. Okay. All right. And his cousin, uh, the one who was with Missy, John Tatum, was uh, a That's Pensacola. his cousin? I think so. I, I had think no so. idea. Pensacola guy as well. Um, so I'm driving home. I've got referee Bill Alfonso with me and Matt Bourne asks for a ride. And for six hours, I'm just reliving that match, every move in my head. So by the time I arrive home, it's like 5 a.m. And I can't sleep because I want to keep reliving that match in my head. So when I'm asked if I miss wrestling... I don't, I don't, because like we said, I get a lot of the same joy that I got out of wrestling when I do the one-man show, and I love doing this, and even when I do the ridiculous cameos, you know, I, I, I do, I genuinely feel fulfilled doing that. But when I went, uh, three of my children were uh, going to the uh, NXT, when they first started running house shows, they were running their first house show in Philadelphia, Tower Theater, 
or the Outlaws, not the New Age Outlaws, but the Southern Rock Band. They had done one of their live albums at the Tower Theater. So it was a great venue. I'm going to go and take a, a vacation with my youngest son, Huey. I'm going to meet them in Philadelphia. We're going to drive down where I've got a couple of appearances in Maryland, West Virginia, and then we're going to go to Dollywood. Uh, and then I, we end up driving from there to see uh, uh, Becky and Sasha Banks in that great NXT TakeOver match. But the house show, it's the first time the women have main evented. And I apologize if I told this story uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and they tear the house down. And I'm able to go backstage after the match and be part of that feeling of joy. Um, and my kids are there to see it. And, you know, the two women are they're just so happy. They're, I know it's good to say that Charlotte was weeping, but... They were, I remember tears, and I remember thinking, this is what I miss, that post-match glow where you just know everything has gone right, and then you are not going to sleep because you want to keep reliving every moment of that. So that, that reminded me of those special nights. They didn't happen all that often. Right? Yeah. So maybe there were two dozen of those matches that I felt that way during the course but of my career. this was one of them. And it didn't necessarily have to be a pay-per-view or even a TV. It could be a house show. Because at that time, you, you know, most guys went as hard out, or not everybody, but some of us went as all out on the house shows as we did on the pay-per-views. Um, and when you felt that, when you'd done something special, that was more telling than the number of stars you would get. Yeah. But it was how it made you feel. Yes. And that was a driving force. Uh, you know, of course, we wanted to make a good living. And at that point, they said $3,000 a week was a lot of money then. You could argue it still is, but it was more about feeling that way after a match. Well, I encourage everybody uh, to go check it out. I mean, Dave isn't entirely wrong there at the end about it shortening your career, uh, but I know you were super happy with it. Uh, is this match still one of your favorites? It's in the top ten for sure. Probably five or six. Yeah. Are you surprised you didn't have another run with Sting? Considering the success of how well that match was received? Bill left shortly after, right? Yep. Ole came in. Eric Bischoff was there. But Ole was back in the mix. And, uh, yeah, I was kind of relegated to, you know, mid-card duty pretty shortly after. We still, I mean, I still had another two years uh, with the company, and I had the, the great matches with Vader. Yep. D Dusty was still involved. I can't remember the exact hierarchy, because I still remember going and pitching the the angle that went on to be Dusty lost. Dusty was handling a lot of the booking, I think, at yeah. different times with Holy, but I think, you know, Eric was running TV. Yeah. And Sharon Sedillo was handling a lot of promotions yeah. and stuff with Mike Weber, and and I did I did have the the babyface turn that went really well. I'll argue that it was going better than the powers of B wanted it to. Sure. Um, and so uh, you know I, there was always the feeling that I was being asked for the ball before I was done running with it. That the uh, carpet was being pulled out from underneath me. But nonetheless, I still had a, a lot of that run was good. I was It was never a bad run. It was always good. I'm surprised I didn't get uh, in with Sting more. But I think within a, a handful of months, I was a babyface. I can't remember the exact date where I turned with uh, Paul Orndorff and Harley and, and Vader. But it was in pretty short order because uh, uh, 
a, a year later, I was doing uh, Halloween Havoc with uh, Vader at the top of the card. Unbelievable. So, yeah. Um, let me ask about the Sting situation. You said that this match would be a top 10 for you. Is Sting a top 10 opponent for you? Yeah. Because Sting is a guy, going back to our conversation about The Undertaker, um, so I give my speech in 2013, my induction speech. It's been 22 years since Sting and I had our first big matches. 21 year, you know, 21 years since that uh, um, uh, false can anywhere match. And I don't mention Sting in my Hall of Fame speech. The stuff that I'm best known doing for with Undertaker was 24 years ago, and the initial matches were 22 years ago. So I'll argue Sting was every bit as important to my career, and more so, more so because he was helping make me, um, whereas The Undertaker was already iconic. Yeah. He maybe needed a, a something, and I may have been that something, but it wasn't nearly on the level what Sting did for me. Right. Nobody thought anything when I didn't mention Sting in my uh, speech. So again, uh, to, to, we might as well go off the air quoting Shakespeare if we're going to say much ado about nothing. Uh, it wasn't much ado about nothing, but it was little to do about not very much. All right, let's be honest. Do you hate feeling miserable the day after the drinks? You feel like maybe you've been thrown off the hell in a cell? Same. Well, luckily, a game-changing product called Zebiotics is here to help. Zebiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. How about that? It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Now, here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you need it most. So drink Zbiotics before drinking, drink responsibly, and enjoy the night with confidence. And I got to admit, I wasn't too sure about this the first time I heard about it, but then I tried it with my pal Eric Bischoff several years ago now at a podcast movement. We had had a great day meeting with agencies, but then we wanted to celebrate uh, we also had to be on stage the next morning to present at like 8 a.m. Well, we both enjoyed a bottle of Zbiotics before our first drink, and we were shocked at how great we felt the next day. We were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. We could really tell a difference. It makes such a difference the next day. I make sure I always have Zbiotics before drinking. Even after drinks, the night before, I know I'll be able to hit the ground running, whether it's with a podcast or doing mortgages or Maybe if I got to hit the old dusty trail for a road trip with the wife, Zbiotics makes it all possible. I can't recommend this enough. I want you to try it. And if you've listened to this show long enough, you know that I'm a big fan of the old vodka waters. Well, dude, Zbiotics is what I do before the vodka waters. I'm a hundred percent convinced that Zbiotics actually works. And I want you to try it, especially right here during the holiday season. Savor the moment. Let Zbiotics do the rest. Go right now to zbiotics.com slash Mick to get 15% off your first order. When you use Mick at checkout, Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember head to zbiotics.com slash Mick and use the code Mick for 15% off. And we want to thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring today's episode and the good times we might have tonight. 
Yeah. Well, there's a lot going on at cameo.com oh, forward slash Mick Foley. Have we Foley. hit that moment now? It's our favorite part oh, of the show. Okay. By the way, this oh. is definitely not a plug. Oh my gosh, we forgot look about who this. it is. We forgot about Mr. Socko. We have the Super Socko sale going Super on. Super Socko sale. Super Socko sale, June 1st through June 7th through Pro Wrestling Tees, where you get not only the signed sock, but the certificate of authenticity, and also we don't know what other autographed item there's going to be. Last year it was a print, an artwork, piece of artwork, for thirty dollars shipping worldwide. So it's three signatures for thirty. And when I do these, uh, you know, when any of us do WrestleCon things like that, you don't get a single autograph for that kind of money. But ships worldwide through Pro Wrestling Tees. It's a great, I think it's a cool way to commemorate my birthday. I think it's the fifth or sixth year we've done it. Uh, they print them out so it's not a case where the Foley, adult Foley children are going around to every Target, <laughs> Walmart. With Trying them. to buy socks. And then the, the smell of markers permeates the basement for three weeks. These are printed out so they all come out good. Signature looks nice. So I just want to point out Go to uh, ProWrestlingTees.com or follow me on uh, Twitter.com slash RealMcFoley, Facebook.com slash RealMcFoley. So we got that in. I'm glad we did. And also, uh, go to the same thing, uh, RealMcFoley.com, the website, because I've got a bunch of the live shows coming up. You're all over the place I'm these really days. excited about it. It's been a great run for me. Um, I'm kind of winding down to the end of my uh, U.S. shows, and then we're going to hit Canada. We're going to hit Australia, I believe. Wow. Maybe the U.K. and Ireland. Uh, but I've got dates in um, Syracuse, New York. is going to be my birthday, wow. June 7th. I haven't performed my birthday in many, many years. I think Cuba, New York is another one, another upstate town. Albany, New York. Um, West Nyack, New York, where unfortunately my college girlfriend cannot make the show, but she did make the one I had eight years earlier. And I thought, how cool is this? That someone I have only seen once or twice in the last 30 years thinks enough of me to attend with her husband wow. and then is having a great time despite not being a wrestling fan. So she will not be in attendance, but it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, Does her new husband know that you're nicknamed the Hardcore Legend? <laughs> Because he may not. That's the reason she may not be coming back. The hardcore legend. I don't know what that means, but we're leaving. Apparently, for the adults out there, don't let your children Google hashtag hardcore legend. No, Because no. there's another line of business that uh, could be confused in. So uh, I do have the copyright to hardcore legend. Thanks to our friend Mike Dawkins. <laughs> secured it for He's me. He's everywhere. <laughs> so now uh, the business at hand. Let me see what I have here. Of course, we're here. talking all things Cameo. Don't forget, cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. And there's a special promo code, capital F, Foley yeah. 20. That's Foley 20 with a capital F. You get a special deal there. Be sure to do it on the website, though. Don't do it on the app on your phone. Apple's going to take a big bite of the, uh, well, They sure will. Yeah, so they will. Cameo.com on your computer, cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. And that promo code FOLEY20 gets you an extra special deal. <laughs> hey, listen, I know I did a little bit of my way, but yep. I did not do it with music, right? Right. Okay, so this this woman's 75 years old. Wow. She, I don't think, and I will do the, I'll do Dude Love singing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Or should I go out there at the risk of offending Donna, who's 75, with something that could take a turn 
for the worse. So tell me what you I'm think. I'm going with the second one, Max. Second one? Okay, let's see. This is a, We're live here. We're going to go for it and see what happens here. All right, so... In we, case you're not familiar, Mick is the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be at Cameo. I'm the Bret Hart of Cameo. Thanks to, I think I, a word's gotten around. People can go and compare. They go to Cameo.com. First of all, you can look at the reviews. Yes. And uh, you can you see. You have more than anybody, right? I have over 4,000. Yeah. Is, and the next closest, has less, next closest athlete or wrestler has less than 2,000. Wow. So I'm really happy about that. Uh, I do try to put a lot into it. And then you can check out the videos as well. I do try to come up with some songs. This is one I've used very rarely. I've used it a couple times as a Valentine's song, a couple times for Christmas, but it's going to be a birthday song here uh, involving a classic. Uh, hold on. All right. And I believe there might be some tears before things take a turn for the worse. Okay. So hold on a second. Hamilton, Ontario. All right. Spain. Okay. Hello, my name is Mick Foley, sometimes known as the hardcore legend. Don't let the short hair or the gray in the beard or the age around the eyes fool you. I am the same guy who defeated Dwayne The Rock Johnson twice uh, and Stone Cold Steve Austin once. When it comes to the two victories over The Rock, my son Huey, who I talked about on uh, my podcast, Foley's Pod, earlier today, just in the interest of full disclosure, we are recording this for Foley's Pod. There's my host, Conrad, Dave Grillo, behind the camera. Um, my son, Huey, he, uh, he can get on my case. And to this day, he says that my two victories over Dwayne Johnson are the two least realistic things to ever happen uh, in wrestling. That's covering a lot of territory. But nonetheless, I, it was believable if you were watching at the time. And I believe you were because tell me you have been a big fan for a long time a lifelong wrestling fan and thinking what better way to celebrate 75th birthday than with a cameo video from her all-time favorite wrestler then it turns out uh austin's not on cameo neither's rock uh you took a look at the nature boy rick flair's price and you said "Woo, that's a little more than i wanted to spend not arguing it's not worth it Rick, he delivers the goods, for sure. He cuts that uh, heart, uh, wheeling, dealing, kiss, dealing, son of a gun promo uh, like no other. But in this case, you settled for me, and I'm sure glad that you did. Uh, I know you were born in Hamilton, Ontario. You worked in Switzerland and Spain, and now you're retired with your husband in Tiner, tiny Beaver Harbor, New Brunswick, the sardine capital of the world. So I just learned something. I just thought that Sardinia was the guy. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, New Brunswick, uh, Prince Edward Island is the muscle capital world, I believe. Uh, so just, uh, just trying to make this educational. I do have a special guest here, and uh, he's going to sing a song. Uh, this is a very rarely sung. It is a birthday song, an original dude love composition. It goes to the tune of a very famous song. Get the uh, tissues out. It's going to be an emotional ride as I introduce you to the hippest cat in the land. He is. <laughs> oh, that's right. It is none other than Dude. 
Jude Love. Yes, and I am sending you birthday greetings of peace, ow, love, and understanding the heartfelt hope that this 75th birthday will be the happiest, the grooviest, downright most enjoyable in the history of mankind. And because it's a special occasion, I'm offering up a special tune. Oh, yes, indeed. Feel that groove as the dude takes you on a little musical journey in the key of F, which I believe is the most beautiful of all keys. Have yourself a happy little birthday. Though my budget's tight. Next year, dude, we'll throw a party that is out of sight. Have yourself a happy little birthday. What's that on your face? A frown. Next year, dude, we'll try to turn it upside down. Here we are on this special day. Come on, let's play with toys. The last time I felt so unwound is when I found my uncle's old playboys. Through the years, I looked at those old photos till I wore them out. But these days, you can find them with an online mouse. A laugh from Grillo. Yeah. And have yourself a happy little birthday now. Oh, wait, hey, whoa, hey, oh, come, come on, for dude, for crying out loud. That's got to be the worst birthday greeting I've ever heard in my life, that the secret to a happy birthday is to look at online pornography. I'm not endorsing it. 75 years old. It's been a lifelong wrestling fan. You're going to hit me with this guy. Let's just call it what it is. Dude, love, you were the jabroni of the group. You didn't do a damn thing besides winning Stone Cold, a tag team goal with Texas' own homegrown Chrome Dome, Stone Cold Steve Austin. But you're, you know what? I'm going to channel my inner Vince McMahon. Dude, love, you're fire. This is the hardcore legend. What do you think, guys? How would you like that song? <laughs> hey. yeah. All right, now we're going to see a, a big influx uh, of uh, requests for that song now that you are on Foley is Pod. Thank you so much for being a huge fan. I'm going to be up in Canada sometime in the fall, so please uh, check me out there. Uh, check out realmcfoley.com. would be a real honor to see you. I'm going to tell my people to get me a booking in Beaver Harbor, New Brunswick. That's right. I'll be up in Nova Scotia May 28th. Maybe we can make that happen. <laughs> Wishing you the very best. Thanking you so much for thinking of me and also for thinking of me to make this birthday
Nice. Huh? How about that, dude? Uh, it's marked as private. Oh, no. I know. I, uh, I'll have to ask her if I have the ability. And then we, if not, then what we can possibly do is creatively beep out her name and the town. You know what? Everybody's going to be happy. Yeah. And uh, Ted DiBiase said everybody's got a price. Everybody yeah, does have uh, a so price. So this might cost me a little cash, but we need to get this on the air. <laughs> we need this on the air. We want this on I the air. I just want to have that in there and we bleep out her name, but you still get to say Tiny Beaver, <laughs> which is just something I never imagined words would touch when you and I were doing a podcast. But yeah, here we are. There was a little beaver, a well-known um, little person worker, but Tiny Beaver, yeah, Tiny Beaver. Uh, one better than a little, I would say. No, no, it's not. No, that's, that's sorry. Let's just beep that whole thing out, okay? Well, <laughs> my reaction to it. There's an old, uh, there's a T-shirt I saw an old lady wear once, and I'll change the words around a little bit because we're family friendly for the most part. Yeah. Although you can't tell this show. Uh, and her shirt said, "Old beaver's better than no beaver." <laughs> <laughs> and you're talking to a man who always liked the older ladies. Always liked the old my, lady. My wife is uh, old. She's my senior. Is she really? Yeah, she's uh, seven and a half years older than and my me. My wife's five years older than me. How about that? Celebrating our thirtieth anniversary. And we're both wearing sweatpants today. We have a lot oh, in common. Man, we, yeah, we're doing good. I, I think I mentioned love the Waylon Jennings song Amanda. I don't know if Don Williams sang it first or who wrote it, but the line says, you know, I, I, Don Williams sings this is I'm not approaching, but something searching. 30 still wearing jeans you know and it's by Waylon sings I finally hit 30 still wearing jeans and then as it went on said I'm pushing 40 still wearing jeans like I'm 50 I'm turning 57 June 7th for you fans of Syracuse join me out there for my birthday bash hitting 57 still wearing sweatpants and in public I come in I, I love doing this. I'm going to have a Whataburger. Uh, oh, man. You got Dwayne Johnson struggling. Struggling. And you're trying uh, to support a small support business him. here. Yeah. And I also, can I give a shout out? Yeah. Uh, my son Dewey, as we tape this in advance, is, yeah, he's uh, working his last day for WWE. Today's so, his yeah, last day. He put in over six years. I'm so proud of him. This was something he wanted to do. This was his dream. His dream was not to be in the ring. His dream was to be on creative. I, I discouraged him from doing it. I knew it was a very thankless job. He went out there. The only thing I did for him was I got the email address to send a resume to. Got to give uh, credit. Vince Russo helped get my son on the board because he had Dewey on his podcast talking about his ideas, and wow. Russo, whether you love him or don't love him, can't argue. He's had some great ideas, and yeah. I think he knows talent when he sees it. So he endorsed my son, but I'm so proud of him. Uh, I, it's a shame that it's ending, uh, but I've been encouraging him to, 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 to leave. You know, it's, it's, a it's a really, really tough job. It's a grind. It's a grind. Nobody comes back after a great promo and seeks out the writer. No. Uh, but... People are free to blast them, and they, and I've talked about how you know bullet points are better than written pro, you know. But it is what it is, and I've seen guys talent interact. Finn Balor comes to mind immediately. He must have told me five times over the years how much he enjoyed working with my son. Wow! Uh, so I just want to conclude by telling my son Dewey, I'm so proud of you. I love you, and we're looking forward to spending more time with you. Do you think uh, he's got the the wrestling bug out of his system now? 
You never get it out. It's well, that's it what I was is. Say. You are Don Corleone, and just when you think you're out, they drag you back in. So, I'm just say, saying, somebody like that who's got a proven track record and would probably operate better with less constraints. I'm not saying let him win the world title. He's not going to do a Vince Russo. But I'll be doggone, he could do twin magic with Samoa Joe. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen <laughs> the similarities between my son and Samoa Joe. Always wanted to have my son roll out from under the ring with the, the big trunks on. Uh, so we could maybe make it. that happen. Towel around the somewhere. Snack, yeah, yeah. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up somewhere else. Or if Mr. McMahon sees that maybe you don't have to have someone working for you 70 hours a week to be an asset. They pay, pay some people good money, probably more money than my son made working 70 hours, just be a consultant, you know? And uh, he would be a really valuable guy to have writing promos. And so I know I'm his dad and everybody thinks, you know, highly of their child, but of uh, I'm going on what people have told me and they really like him. I just want to conclude by saying what a great job he did. And uh, if it is the end of his wrestling run, it's been a really great run. I don't know. I think uh, Bill Watts had a son, Micah, who was never on, in on the wrestling end, but was a big uh, boost on the production end. And uh, he's going to do something and make a difference somewhere. I just don't know if it's going to be in wrestling or without, but I want to give him a nod. Thank you, uh, Conrad, for giving me this show and believing me. And thanks to everyone who's made it such a big, uh, such a, such a big success, including you, Grillo. And hey, if you want to, uh, if you want to reach out and congratulate Dewey, feel free to send him a cameo at cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley and make sure you get a good deal. Or he, and also he's on Twitter at Dewey have to, uh, what a so great people, name. Yeah, Dewey have to, and they can send him a, a text if they want congratulating him. So thanks a lot. I'm feeling good. And now oh. We'll see you next week because we'll recap what Mick ate and what burger. What a burger. Right here on uh, Foley is Pie. Yeah.